Welcome back to the Price Law Podcast. Today we are in beautiful Miramar. Are we Miramar? Miramar, but we can call it Miami. Miami, Florida, to be with the Master Foods head rhino, Michael Laferro. Thank you so much for having Thank us. Thank you guys, man. Appreciate it. Pump. All right. Let's put the date in here just for old time's <laughs> sake. Uh, today is, what, January uh, 29th. 29th. Uh, 2024. Yeah, we've been planning this for a bit. We talked in, what, November about doing this? October? The first one was uh, Supply Side, Supply side right? West. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, just quick background. If you've enjoyed pretty much any brownie recently, <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about baked goods today, functional foods. Uh, we just came from a tour of your facility. And now we're be sitting down to talk about all things functional, all things foods. Yeah, we had some flavor tastings. Thank you for having us here, by the way. Um, you are the guy when it comes to functional foods. And like, I've already learned so much here. It's been like really exciting. So I want to take a step back and talk about your background. You're obviously a pretty, I don't know what the rhino thing comes from, but you're a hard-headed entrepreneur, <laughs> you can say. And so you've, you've done a lot of stuff. So I, I'd like to get your background. But then, yeah, I do want to get technical into functional foods, where you see this space going, where we can have some fun in the labs ourselves and everything. So so thanks again for having us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Michael. Thank you, guys, man. First of all, I've been following a lot of the content that you guys are putting out. And I think that in the space of just better for you, sports nutrition, wellness in general, I think what you guys are doing both on fighting for the industry as a whole and then also from like just the content and being able to even spend the time to come down here and do this podcast, just me and the openness that you guys have and the, the drive to push the industry forward. I admire and I respect you guys a lot. Thank you very much. This guy some exciting shit. Yeah, thank you. That's actually really funny. When we met Michael at Supply Side, just for continuity's sake, I'm going to be saying Michael and Mike in this podcast, <laughs> but uh, we were about to go to our Kiowa podcast where we did talk about functional foods and ingredients in it. And one of my favorite things about Michael is you share a passion for like the actual functionality of the foods with us. You are, of course, an incredible baker and, and flavorist, but you care about the function of the food and, and, and adding to that. So... Because I think that it's an untapped territory. Yeah. I think we're still very early in the game of functional ingredients in food. And so that excites me. It's yeah. kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, protein is the first step in. It's kind of like the toe. But man, when you really start to peel back what's possible with really great ingredients, these functional ingredients that there's so many great suppliers creating, I think that's where the magic will evolve over. Um and then the format changes. It's yeah. like there's this use, there's this this function we're trying to get out of it for XYZ consumer. And so then, hey, it's a format. You can have it in a powder, a tablet, a liquid, and then, you know, a functional food. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit selfish because you actually agree with us on the, the argument of whether or not functional ingredients have a place in foods and whether or not people will value that. Um, but I, I'm really excited because tomorrow we're going to be talking about actual ingredients. But the reason you care about all these things is where you come from. So... I'm sorry, I took a little bit of a tangent here, but to talk about like your background, why do you care about sports nutrition and all these things? Where do you come from? Yeah, so I graduated FIU, uh, magna cum laude, top of my class. I hated school. So it's like, I didn't really want to go through it, but like I try to give 110% in everything that I do. So my mom's like, you got to go to school. You got to finish. Like, that's the way that like, you know, like, you know, our parents grew up, right? So it's like, you know, <laughs> college is the shit. Now it's like, I don't care if my son goes to school or not. And, um so, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, also support them. You don't need to go to college. Um, but I I gave it everything I had and I, and I studied business management. And when I left, I've always wanted to, I've always been the entrepreneur, right? Like I've been the kid that, you know, had lemonade stands in the corner selling. And then I went to baseball cards and sold pogs and like Pokemon cards. And I mean, I used to, 
hand sign like VIP cards and frame them and shit, like just to like make them feel special. And it was like, I was always that kid trying to make a buck, right? Or trying to, I would say, add value in someone else's life that would then be a return of capital for me. And I think that's what business is, right? It's if you're not adding value into someone's life, why are you starting a business? I don't think you have any means, right? Like you need to be adding value. The value exchange is dollars. Value. And my first goal real at like entrepreneurship was I took a credit card and I had a passion for fitness and I had a $15,000 limit. And I literally went online to Muscle Driver USA and I ordered all this fitness equipment. I found a warehouse in the backpack, like nooks and crannies down in South Florida uh, there was like just open terrain all the way around and uh, $15,000 of credit card worth of equipment. I signed my first lease. I had to have my dad co-sign. It was $1,100 for a space. It was 1,200 square feet. Um, and I opened up the first CrossFit in South Florida and this was 2007. And so if a quick fast forward that story, we ended up writing the business plan for a Reebok CrossFit partnership and scaled that business model where the first rider refusal with a Reebok CrossFit partnership, putting them in like prime locations. So we put them, first one was on 9th and Alton in Miami Beach. Then we went to New York City. We put one right on 5th and 37, one Union Square West. We went to North Carolina, Dubai. I mean, we really kind of started to push what was possible with CrossFit. And CrossFit from just a functional fitness perspective had my heart. It was the first time that I felt like you could compete in fitness. It's like, you're over there and I'm over here, but I'm trying to beat you. And it was like this, this really cool community aspect of pushing each other to be better. So fell in love with that. And that was 2007 to 2015. 2015, my business partner and I kind of uh, realized we were building other people's brands. And every single one of our locations had a different name. So it was like Reebok CrossFit Miami Beach, Reebok CrossFit Fifth Ave you know, IMT CrossFit, like all these different locations. And so it didn't have this corporate structure, everything under one roof. And that was the first real business lesson for me. If I would have had 15 locations in those prime real estate locations under one name, I could have exited for a very, you know, solid amount of money. So we said, okay, lesson learned. Um, we, we made good money. It was a great experience. And, and, you know, some of the best memories of my, you know, childhood, my early twenties or my twenties was that. And then, but fitness was a lifestyle for me at this point. So it was like, this is my, my way. Like, this is what I love to do. Um, so we went out and we built our own company. So we launched, um, our own brand basically that was our company before, but we launched our own brand under the name Neo U N E O U. So Neo U this was 2015 when we started. We started selling off all the individual CrossFits. And then we uh, started building out and pivoted. And we kept the location in New York City on 5th and 37th. And it was 20,000 square feet, two stories. Um, that's like three streets away from the Empire State. So like if you guys know New York City, that's like prime. Um, and we built a full content studio. It was a hub, right? So Neil U was a live and on-demand video platform for brands and trainers to digitally scale their content. And so... If you were a brand, if you were a fitness influencer, a creator, um, you had a physical location and you wanted to digitally scale your content, you would come, we would fly you into New York City, we would shoot your content, package that, and then we would distribute it through our app. And then kind of similar to like a YouTube model where you're able to monetize based off of minutes or views, et cetera, we had the same concept. Uh, this was now by 2017, we had officially launched. 
And in that time, if you think about digital streaming, we were very early in the, in the path, right? Yeah. I was early in CrossFit. I don't know if it's luck. I don't know if it's uh, just kind of like a bigger force that has positioned me in these places. But when I have like a heart feel for something, I go all in. I don't think about it. I don't write a hundred page business plan. I go all in and I follow my heart. And so I did that with CrossFit and then with digital streaming, we did the same thing. Um, we built that up and it was like Peloton and Aptiv were the only true competitors. Um, and it was a scale game. So we were trying to drive uh, as many subscribers as possible and spending crazy money. Um, 2019 comes and my wife got diagnosed with MS and that was a swift kick to the nuts. I mean, my life stopped. I had a two-year-old at that time. I was born in uh, 2017, a boy. And I had been flying up to New York City every Monday and coming back every Friday. So I really wasn't around. Like, there was a lot of stress and pressure that that caused uh, for her. And I don't know if that was the main reason, but I, I kind of attributed back to that. And um, at that moment, I kind of realized, like, okay, I can make money doing anything. Um... I got to be there for my family. And so I took a step back. I came home and I mean, I went from making good money to making zero. It was like a complete stop. But like, I didn't think about that too much because I'm an entrepreneur. I'll pick myself up and, and I, you know, I'm confident in my ability. When I came, so, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Do you have an, like an exit though? Like in terms of like. I, I basically had a, um, not an exit personally, but it was a buy. Like a kind of like I okay. kept some equity in the, in the company. Um, I had a compensation package. It was paid out over six months and I kind of, so I had a, a little bit of breathing, yeah. right? Where I was like, okay, this is my step out. But I knew that I had this kind of like small window to figure something out. And it was enough for me to, you know, get my feet on me. Did you need to be in New York? Seems like part for, of the problem is that you're up north and you live yeah, the here. business was in New York. So it was like the whole team was there. The facility was there. And it was, it was just, a, it was a, that was where the hub is. If we look back now, we should have built it in a warehouse in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, another lesson to chalk up to the books of entrepreneurship. Um, well, for the record, we were sitting in a warehouse with, uh, you know, content equipment. So yeah. learn a lesson, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> I applied it. Um, so, so basically that brought me back home, man. And when it brought me back home, it was like, I, ha I had to stay within health and wellness. It's like, you know, like when you know that there's just, it's like your DNA, mm -hmm. like my mission in life is to change the lives of millions and millions of people for the better. And my vehicle is health and wellness. It's my vehicle. It's the way that I know my mom's in the medical field. My, my father and my brother are police officers. Like we're just a family. My sister's a, a nurse. Like we're just a family of people that is like wellness and helping people in our core. Like that's our DNA. Um, so I was like, I can't exit, but like the I, last thing I want to do is go into fitness. Like I don't want to open up another gym. I want to go sign up for a damn membership and don't worry about it. I don't want to worry about anything. Um, and so I was like, all right, well, I had um, good friends that had manufacturing facilities and powders, tablets, capsules, and they've done it really well and they've exited and all that stuff and kind of went to go pick their brain. And I was like, look, you know, I'm thinking about um, getting into the, the world of functional foods. And like, you know, snacks and this, what do you think? Like, what do you think about that? And they're like, look, it's a complex business, but I think there's a huge opportunity in that. And I'm like, okay. So I just kind of left it there. Um, and then I kind of like started to get into the realm of like dabbling in like uh, products, like CPG products, right? Consumer packaged goods products. And at the time I had met a girl named Ainsley Rodriguez 
in New York City and she went to Neo U and we filmed her content. And the content for her fitness app was 321 Glow, right? And when I came back, I was like, hey, like, you have such a great social presence. Why don't we launch a brand for you, a product-based brand for you? And it'd be like your thing. That's the first go at, we ended up launching a snack brand called 321 Glow, still out today. She owns it. Uh, that is a frosting. So the first product that we ever launched was this better for you frosting and manufacturer four months in COVID hits. So this is 2019 is when I came back October. So like already by like January, February, starting to get like a feel for the industry. We're doing, you know, 30, $35,000 a month in sales. I'm like, okay, there's some legs here. We're, we're able to like really drive this. And our manufacturer goes belly up. Doesn't answer my calls. I'm like, I finally get a hold of them. Like, what's going on? What happened? Well, the fire came in and shut us down. And I'm like, oh shit, this is like a certification issue. I'm like, he doesn't have the right licenses. Like, this is a problem. So at that moment, we ended up getting, uh, I, I ended up just like looking at myself and I was like, damn, like, I can't let this go down. I have to figure this out. So I look at the capital in my bank account, start doing some research, and I said, fuck it. I bought the first nut butter line, uh, fully automated, $120,000, and started making nut butters. Got us back in business. We were out of stock for about a month. And that kind of started to steamroll me into functional foods. And that was like the first real go at like creating any type of food-based item. And then that kind of just spiraled into like everything else. So did you have a warehouse at this point? You have like a, like a location where you're creating this? I had to rent out um, space in the back of a bakery. So it was like a co-shared space. Yeah. So like, I needed the licenses. I needed exactly. uh, like all the, the, you know, yeah. So you're, because I assume that, I mean, I know that when you get into manufacturing, there's this like wall where you have to have your certs, you have to have, you have to have your, your, your whole thing tight, right? And, and for a lot of people, Sounds like for your previous manufacturer, that's a bit of a hurdle that a lot of people can run into issues with. Yep. Um, tell us about the switch from renting a space in the back of a bakery to now you rent or own this whole warehouse where you have all this stuff going on. I mean, we just, we looked at like four different lines over there. What was that scale like? So it kind of went into two stages. The first stage was a co-shared space that was in a bakery. And I mean, I probably had about 500 square feet. Like it was enough for me to fit the line and a few people. Um, but I had the basics to be able to, to cover myself and to ensure that I had a sanitary place to create products. The second step was I moved into a larger co-shared space and the larger co-shared space was completely, they did like croqueta. So like, if you know anything about like, you know, we just had some this morning <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so they had about, um, 7,000 total square feet. And I think I rented out about 3000 square feet of that. Um, but it had all the right licenses and everything. So I was able to take the company from like base foundation into like, okay, now cool here. I'm going to start to like, look at third-party certifications and start to like, get it a little bit further. I was there for about six, seven months before the business really started to like scale past the point that I was able to have the space. Like I didn't have warehouse raw, like raw material storage or any of that. Right. So it was, I had 3000 square feet, I fit all my machines in there, bring in the rolls, knock out the product, get the product out the door as quickly as I possibly could. Um, and then I was like, I have to find a space that can be my home that can allow me to build on a strong foundation. And if you know anything, I think one of the bigger lessons too, that like I learned throughout my journey with the different companies before is 
the capital side. So like the leaning on private equity, leaning on VC, uh, bringing on investors. I didn't want to go that route. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to do this myself with my capital or my closest, closest family and friends, right? Like I brought in three or four of my like family and friends and that's it. Everything else has been me from here, this on up. Leaning on bank loans and all that, but you're starting, you're still in your first year. You're, so you're not, and that could be a whole nother conversation that we can get into, but realistically it's like, I wanted to do this with no outside people driving the direction or telling me what to do. It was like, I had to figure out a way to build this on my own two feet. So that was roughly the end of 2020 where you're- That was the end of, well, 21. We launched January of 21 from from a master food lab perspective. Gotcha. Before that, it was just like, I was just trying to manufacture the nut butter line for the 321 Globe brand. Like I wasn't a manufacturer in 2020 per se. Right. You were more like in a commercial kitchen kind of thing. It was like commercial kitchen to create a product to keep us in stock, right? A nut butter. That's it. That was 2020. Um, but it also gave me an understanding of like manufacturing, mm-hmm. right? And the difficulties and like understanding the team members and all that stuff. So that was my first real like stab at this. Were you making it all yourself then in 2020 when you're at like that commercial kitchen? It was like, it was like me and my wife and like maybe uh, one other baker. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. It was like, this is like, we're going to get it off the ground with nothing. That's how you learn. That's it. And then, so, so then you started looking into your own facilities, you start funding this yourself and everything. Yep. It's a kind of like a chicken egg process. Like you have to ev- eventually get brands to sign on or whatever. Like you have to start getting clients. What did you do to start? Yeah. So, so it was, um, so to go to the question on the space, like that space at the time that I acquired it, I was looking at it for about uh, four or five months and it was, it's a 16,000 square foot, you know, production facility. It was the old Panera bread. So it's where they made all of the breads for the South Florida um, locations. And it was their main, their main area, right? So I find this place. It's 25 minutes north from my house. And I'm like, it's got everything, right? The grease traps. It's got like the, the, the clean water supply. It's got the oven. It's got, like, it's got everything it needs from uh, production or a large-scale you know, bakery or contract manufacturing for foods. I was like, this is the spot. I have to have it. But I was still... Maybe I would say four to six months too early mm-hmm. from like a business cycle to be able to afford it. But I just, I, I couldn't let it go. Right. And it was a battle between me and another brand in order to get it. And we ended up uh, at the end, last minute, they were like, no, we have to go with that brand because the brand's been around for a while. And I'm like, all right, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And it'll come back to me. If it's not, then it's not. Two months later, they call me. They're like, hey, listen, it fell through last minute. Do you want it? I'm like, yes. Did you get a better price on it? <laughs> I, I was able to I was able to actually get a really good price. I paid like about fifteen dollars a square foot. So in this area, fifteen bucks a square foot is very difficult to get. Um, and I got a, a long term lease and all. So like I'm in a really good position for what I pay there and for the the like the build out. Like I'm at a two two and a half million dollar build out. That's the location we were just at. Yeah, that's where okay. So that that right facility there. is like set up right. Yeah, awesome. I was mostly just joking about the following through and them coming back. You're a little bit of <laughs> then I'm like a push. I'm like, oh, you want me now? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's all about that story. I don't know, man. I'm from Jersey. I like I, I, oh, bargaining powder. I'm like you, you use it, you know. I am with you. Well, I mean, so you said you were four or five months ahead, but then what? Two months later, so it, it was the proper time about when you when you finally got that call back. You're saying right? Like you, you said it was too early. Even no, when I got it, even when I got it, it was still a stretch for me because, um. You have to put three months of capital down for security deposit. So that's capital out. And 
you know, 16,000 square foot space, you do the math. It's a good amount of money that, you know, a startup pretty much has to come out of pocket with, with no outside sourcing to be yeah. able to put that out. It's a lot of capital out of bank account, right? So it obviously put me in a very tight spot to try to figure it out. But again, I just, I, I, I believe in um, my ability to figure things out. And so it was kind of like gamble on me. And like, I was just wasn't going to let that opportunity pass me by because I knew what, what could be built and and I know we're still very early in this industry's kind of like growth cycle. Right. That's what it seems like. You're talking to people like yourselves and I, going way back, a lot of the natural entrepreneurs were the kids selling candy at high school or like doing things like that. And you're one of them. It's like either like you learn it from your parents or you just have it like naturally built in where you just would hustle as a kid. So it's kind of funny. Like I had to pay for route and stuff and had to go door to door collecting for money and stuff. And you learn how to ask for money at that point. So it's a, uh, it's kind of funny. What about the the food side of things? Like, are you a foodie? Are you into uh, like? I mean, I'm a fat kid. I'm a fat kid at heart, kid. right? Yeah, exactly. So I say that because, like, I don't. I believe more in a better for you option that tastes amazing that <laughs> you're gonna enjoy than I believe in the super clean twenty grams, twenty five grams of protein, zero grams of sugar model. I, I am more the Man, I believe people want to enjoy what they're putting in their body. I believe they want it to be a healthier option. And I believe that they're willing to sacrifice a few grams of sugar for a great tasting product. Mm -hmm. So I believe more in that. And so my inspiration comes from like that fat kid mentality, which is like you you want the indulgent, delicious, like, I mean, I'll go through the public aisles and I'll look for things that are like in these packaged, you know, chemically things and they're feeding our kids and you know, we grew up eating all of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like the cosmic brownies and like the Twinkies and uh, all that stuff because there's a reason why it's successful, right? There's a reason why the average American is consuming these high amounts of processed sugared foods. There's obviously the impact that sugar makes in your body and like the reason why you get hooked on it. But man, if I can get that item or give you that feeling of nostalgia that takes you back or that better for you treat. I believe more in that. So that kind of, I use that more than my knowledge. I think when I got into it for bake, I don't, I don't have a, I'm not a baker by trade, right? I'm not, that's not who I am. I had to become a baker, but Google and YouTube and the desire to absolutely want to become the best is a pretty strong formula for learning whatever you need to learn. Baking itself is just a scientific process too. Yeah. I went to college for dietetics, but that included a lot of food science and we learned to bake. You know, you just, you, you learn what these ingredients are, what they do when they go under different reactions of different heat, heat, whatever. Like, like we were talking, like I asked you with the crazy sound coming out of the corner of the manufacturing facility, it was, it was egg whites being beaten. And the second you said that, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It will be much louder when you're making 30,000 <laughs> units. You gotta like beat the shit out of it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like I, no, yeah, I like the kitchen name mixes. Yeah, or like when I'm like beating eggs for like a small, like, I don't know, whatever I do, like it's in a little, you know, bowl. But for you, obviously, it's the size of me, right? And it's going to be loud. Um, I, 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 I love what you kind of explained to us uh, in terms of like your desire for food to just be functional and like enjoyable, but not as terrible. Like, for instance, this morning you picked us up and took us to breakfast at this like small kind of like family place. It wasn't the healthiest breakfast no. by any means, but it was extremely enjoyable. We sat there and talked about it. Like it was an experience. It was a social aspect. And I mean, we didn't, you know, clog our arteries by any means by eating that food, but it was something that was 
enjoyable and special is a great way to start the day. There's a lot more to food than just how it tastes, right? There's there's a lot more to it. So I think your brand overall, I, I enjoy this phase of fitness and, and food because it's becoming a little more relaxed where we can enjoy the food and not worry too much. But of course, it's still be functional and not cosmic brownies. A hundred percent. And I think it goes back into like, where did, where is the beautiful balance between the brand and the consumer? And every brand has a unique perspective as to what product, recipe, formula, ingredients, um, however that in product is formed or created for the end consumer, right? Because I'll give you an example. If I were to create a product for a doctor-led brand that he has 15 locations and he wants to create a better for you item for his clients or customers, it is a completely different approach than if I were to create a product for a sports nutrition brand that is sold in a vitamin shop or a GNC and is also a completely different approach than if I was to create a kid's um, line of better for you healthy snacks. Every single one of those and even more, I mean, you could literally slice the pie so many different times. But that's where that's what gets me the most excited, right? Is having that conversation and kind of peeling back these layers of discovery to find the real magic of like what's going to allow you to bring a functional food to market that's going to be a winner. Mm-hmm. It seems like with a lot of the brands we work with, though, they kind of have they have the direction in terms of pre workout. Like this is the high stem brand, or this brand gets all pumped up and everything. They don't seem to always know their functional food, though. Like, how do you, let's say I have a high stem brand. That doesn't really translate to, I want a functional food. So, like, how do we have that conversation? If I'm, if I'm, I got this really good high stem pre-workout, we want to just get into the space because we were fat kids too or whatever. What's the conversation like? It's, okay, let's peel back the first step of where it's going to, we're going to get the most amount of information from, and it's who's your actual consumer. So say that your actual consumer is this gym goer who is loves high stim, very kind of uh, fitness buff driven, maybe male in his 30s and 40s. You would approach that completely different from a product and formula perspective than I would if I was going after a female driven, maybe a beauty brand, right? Like there's there's different ways to slice it. So the first is let, if you want to peel that back in real time, I would say, okay, you're a high stim brand. Your pre-workouts are your number one sellers. Like that's your go-to. It moves. You sell in traditional kind of retail, but your direct to consumer is a mate. Like that's where you drive the most amount of your 80, 20 based business. Um, 80% direct to consumer, 20% retail. You really haven't even started playing in the, um, distribution game. So understanding your distribution channel strategy, right? Like how we're actually going to get this product to your end consumer who your end consumer is, what you stand for as a brand, like that's the actual trilogy. That's the magic of giving us the insights to understand what is going to be the initial product we should even have a discussion about. It's like, Mm. and and even, we're not even at the product format level. We're even at the, what value do you want this product to add and for what reason to their life? That might be a product like, hey, you know what? Like these guys are are on our our pre-workout and they're going to hit a real hard workout. Mm -hmm. I now want to give them a product that is going to help them recover at the fastest rate possible, but it's not going to be in the format of a drink. I would want to launch a functional food that has real strong actives that's going to be allowed that's going to allow them to recover fast. And so then this is kind of like this pre and post kind of combo, right? Mm-hmm. In two completely different formats. So then we would land on, okay, cool. 
this person is working out. This is the demo. This is the type of person. Okay, cool. Here's, you know, here's a product from a, an active ingredient perspective that we can come up with. And then here's the next format. And then what flavor profiles do you want? So like you start to work your way into a really good product because the value that you're adding is sound in your business model, but is also delivering value to that customer. And so then everything plays in nicely. This is why it seems like it'd be good to work with you because you're actually a fitness guy who likes supplements and everything. Yeah. You got pre-workout in your car. Oh, so. I mean, fuck. <laughs> I, I was the kid going to like buy all like the functional foods and all the energy drinks and all. I mean, like that was me. I would have been a consumer for so long that I've tried pretty much almost all the brands that are out there. I actually know the gap. And that was one of the reasons why I got into the functional food side. Like I saw this huge gap in functional foods. I saw I was like, man, you have... Large-scale contract manufacturers that are out there, powders, tablets, capsules, there's a lot of great ones out there, right? Right. Um, and you guys know a ton of them. When you look at functional food manufacturers, I could probably count them on one hand. Good, quality, certified, like reliable, understand communication, very, very rare. Lead times under like an eight-week window. I will tell you, it is probably one of the hardest things to find right now, somebody that you can trust to launch a functional food for. So that gave me the confidence, like, shit, there's an awesome opportunity here. Like, there's a real opportunity to make a business that is so hard and complex because this is a very difficult business. To I was just going to ask, like, why was that gap open there? And it sounds like- It is very, very difficult. It's, it's, a, it's a complex business from the science side to understand how to create great formulations. That alone is a hurdle mm -hmm. to the undertaking of building an actual footprint like that is like a full manufacturer with all the certifications like having the warehouse having the team is a, is a high amount of people that like it's a lot of like it, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle right and then doing it at scale is the most difficult part because anyone can cook a brownie in their oven and eat it and it's great and beta test that but then when you try to make 20 50,000 of them and make sure that they're shelf stable that's a huge undertaking shelf stable consistent yeah. The brand is able to rely on you for turnaround times that they can lean on. Like there's a lot of moving pieces to the manufacturing. There's label accuracy, right? Yeah, like testing. Testing, yep. all of these things. Uh, I mean, it's it's been a bit of a joke on our side is I try to leave, when we get boxes of functional foods, I try to leave at least one of them in my closet for a while because if you come back six months later, they're going to be hard, moldy, bad, or just, you know, not like just doesn't taste good after a certain yeah. amount of time. And like you, you were kind of saying earlier today that you kind of shoot for a year shelf life and really shouldn't be out there that much longer. It should be selling through. But man, I've had somewhere like in six weeks, it's moldy, you know? And, and it's, so if, at the end of the day, it's a food item, mm -hmm. right? And I think that one of the biggest things for me as a, as a leader in food manufacturing, I really want to uh, help brands and consumers and everybody really understand that food manufacturing is, is there still risk? It's a very risky industry or business. If you look at large scale contract manufacturers that do things from like Jif to like all these other food, they have product, like bad stuff, Intermins, they, these guys are multi-billion dollar companies. You get mold in your little mini muffins that your kids eat and get, what do, what do you do? You throw them away, right? So it is, it is food, it's still food and it will happen. We as a manufacturer have to just go above and beyond in our sanitation, our QC process, our QA process. And, and little things like, you know, like I was mentioning, like we've even implemented things like, you know, UV blue light to, to try to go that extra step to just try to kill anything that, that could be potentially leaning behind. But mold grows in areas that are 
to have water. Like in order for mold to grow, you need to have water, has to have humidity, you have to have like food. So when all those elements in a baked good are there in a moist brownie that's sitting on a shelf for 10 months, like or so, you have to ship it. So it changes temperature, humidity, his package. Like there's all these things that we can't control, right? So from a manufacturing side, we have to go above and beyond to do our best. There's always still risk left on the table. Does I was going to ask, does being here, like, this is South Florida, right? right. So does that cause, with humidity here, does that cause extra grief for you, or is it actually, like, a beneficial to the process? Uh, obviously, temperature. So, like, the hotter the temperature, if you're putting a product into, like, a hot truck, you, and that product has a high humidity content, or you're shipping it in a container for, you know, four weeks through the sea, I mean, just think about that. Your, your product is changing a temperature right it's a neutral temperature right so that cool like you know temperature that you're supposed to store it at right that room temperature you kind of you're pushing these these barriers right that's where it becomes a little bit risky so from a south florida perspective like if the product has that we always recommend like hey you know either you know ship it quickest time you can the quickest turnaround time you can um, or you have your driver set up in certain times of the day. So you're not like in the heat of the summer. Cause like in our May, June, July, August, like that's our hottest months. So it's okay. Look, you know, pick up real early or pick up late at night and it's the drive or refrigerated truck. Right. So you try to lean on ways for you to minimize those things, but yeah, you have to be aware of elements. Like the elements can change the impact on the product. Not so much on your powder, right? Your powder is really not going to be impacted as much. You might get some clumping or, you know, stuff like that, but. What was the learning curve like for all of this? Because you, you had, you know, months at your own spot and you kind of moved to another spot and you launched at this warehouse. Like, were there hurdles where you were recalling stuff or like- you, you, yeah. I mean, like the, the, because I didn't go to school for tens of years, like tons of years to try to figure out like all the things that could potentially go wrong to think through all those things. A lot of these lessons came as like, you know, my head hitting the wall a few times to, to understand- what was causing that. And because I'm trying to be ahead of innovation and I'm trying to push that, and I'm always willing to take the risk to bring something unique, I have to be willing to take the punches and, and, and learn the lessons because there's nobody out there telling me, Hey, this was done like this. And this is how you should do it because this is the way it's going to work. Right? So yeah, we, there's the, the lessons that we have and continue to experience um, are just, there's a lot of them. What, what food innovations would you say you played with that made the difference between, from like the old bars and stuff into this period now where you're producing these muffins and cupcakes and brownies? Like, like what really was the big step for you? Each one has like its unique learning experience to understand it, but from the basic of basic levels is understanding, like you said earlier, the science behind every single ingredient and the impact that that ingredient has in either a baked good in an initial stage and then the the evolution of that product that we're getting over time, right? So there's this initial product, like you have this perfect product here today and then, okay, it might be perfect today, but what does this look like three, six, nine, 12 months down the road? And are we preparing for that? Um, and then the other side is, really can't, like you could take a perfect formula and you have the mixing method, you have the actual order in which these ingredients are added, right? And then you have the baking method 
right? Or even, you know, how the product is coming to, to, to be in its actual dispensed form. And you can be off by five degrees. You could mix one minute too long. You could, I mean, these are very, very small things. Cause if you think about it, you saw the mix, right? These are, these is bulk, right? So the smallest, smallest of tweaks can impact your product. And those lessons are like, you don't need, you're looking at it and you're like, I literally did the exact same thing. We have done the team comes with like, Mike, we did the exact same thing. We just did 27 batches over the last two days. Like we, this one didn't come out good. You got to go back to every single ingredient. You got to understand, okay, what ingredient was different? What was the method? Like you start to break down these things, but now the format of how we set it up, how you go back to troubleshoot, because there's always things that, you know, like go aside. It's pretty much the same. It's you like there's this rule book. Yeah. Now. You seem definitely willing to throw away a little bit of product. Like the fat kid and me <laughs> struggle to see the trays of, of product that weren't just perfect. Cause like when it first comes off the line, yeah. it's a little bit like off looking or whatever. We tasted that they're <laughs> very good, but, um, but it's, it's impressive to see that you are not willing to let a brand have something that might not even like have some chocolate on the corner. Or so that's manufacturing, right? I, that's overage. That's right. Yeah. Right. Like th that's a sign of a, I mean, that's a sign of a good manufacturer because yeah. right. I would even go to tell you guys that every single opening order with me, I take a loss. Guaranteed. Really? I am going to lose on the first order with that brand because I have to ensure that every single one of those products are perfect, at least perfect to leave my facility. So you're going to, you're losing money because of time or because throwing product, the learning, just... the learning of time. So first day you're running small pilot batches, 10 kilos, then 30 kilos, and you're scaling that up, right? So you're losing time, right? From like a full efficiency scale, but it's part of the game. Like if you're not running from the one kilo up through scale until you get to your macro batch, a lot of things change from just going from a small scale batch to a large scale batch, especially in, in baking. Um, a little bit more lenient when you're doing stuff like a bar and all, but it's still like your flavor will change or your texture will change. And so very, very important. So you lose time there. And then when we were actually running our first day, our first day is ran slower. So we're doing less capacity. And then I'm also taking product that's there and I'm staging it. So I'm just saying, okay, leave this one out. Um, let's see, you know, how this one ages, you know, so I'm taking, let's say the first batch out. So I lose that first batch. And then if it's not absolutely perfect, like if the cookie didn't fall all the way down to the right level, if it stayed like, you know, a little bit hot, what happened there? Okay, cool. That bake went bad. That whole batch is bad. That's, you know, a couple thousand units gone. And so, okay, cool. Bring it up five degrees. All right, let's try again. That's right. There's this, there's this massive taste because you can go in with five trays at a certain temperature for a certain time. But when you put 30, it changes. Right. And those are the nuances. Those are the lessons that as you slowly start to experience and get more experience, you learn. Right. And so, yeah, we're, we probably take a, a good solid loss on that. I know for sure we take a loss on that first one, but I'm willing to, I'm willing to, because I am a long-term player. I believe that a really strong relationship is, is a constant evolution to like perfection. And so the brand and the manufacturer have to work back and forth to try to have this Hey, you know, this is what we experienced in our first product. This is what our customers are saying, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like I said, there's always room for improvement. Plus you guys are, um, more of an innovation lab than like a, you know, huge high scale turn and burn type yeah. movement, right? Like people come to you 
for those brownies or for new applications. They don't come to you for a private label. I will not be your cheapest manufacturer in food, but I will be your most innovative and thought-driven, kind of willing to take the gambles, willing to work with the brand to launch a unique SKU. Like I'm more in that world because I believe that that's where like awesome stuff comes out. And it's fun, right? Like you're almost like, formulating, innovating, the excitement behind the brand, the newness of the of the of either the ingredient that hasn't been played with or the format in which is being delivered. And that keeps me really engaged, really excited. So I like that. You know, if it's just a, you know, I'm going to make a couple cents a unit, but I need to produce hundreds and hundreds of thousands of units per day. Like it's kind of not, it's not the business I want to build. Yeah. Right. You're not just making like a zillion power bars or something like that. Like, right. Trying to get away from, like I've had those like, like um, I've had those customers come to us, like the large scale private label brands that are, you know, companies, not even brands, companies. And they're like, Hey, you know, we're, our average is about a million uh, units per month, but we need it to be at 40 cents. I'm like 40 cents by the time I, I can't do it. That's <laughs> just, I just quick math. And you're just like, I, I can't get like, I am not the million unit per, per week kind of brand. So where I'm running two, 300,000 units per shift, I'm running 30, 40,000 units per shift. So my, my, my efficiencies, my team and everything have to be built around that economy of scale at this current moment. Right. Right. I could always continue to scale up. I could have multiple lines running. That's a single line, single eight hour shift, like units that we do. Um, and we've ran double shifts. We ran, you know, 80, 90,000 units in a day, but it comes because there's either a pressure and that I have to get there for a time launch or. Um, but not the run of the mill, like kind of low margin cookie cutter product. I'm not that guy. Right. That seems like it would require more automation and stuff. Like you still have a lot of employees moving things. That's where you need hundred percent. You need the fully automated, you know, million, million and a half dollar lines that you barely have to touch. And it's just the, but that's where you get into the me too products. There's no soul in it. Yeah. Like like you guys are a bakery here and, and, uh, I don't know. We went to that breakfast spot this morning and there was a big sign that said Abuela approved. I thought it was the coolest thing because it's like family, right? And it's like, sorry. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, it's there's awesome. soul to like what you make and there's, yeah. it's different, right? It's not just a power bar on the wall, a power bar on the wall. Like it's, it's a real treat. It's something that's real. There's thought in it. And each brand that produces something through you, like we were looking at the wall of a couple brands that you work with, like there's nothing that's like, oh yeah, it's just a chocolate bar like there's and, always something and look we can do it right so like it just has to fit within the the ability but there's there's bars out there like protein like that's why i never started with protein bars because protein bars like i feel like there's there's great manufacturers out there that can do very high amounts of protein bars they could do it in, in a good economy of scale and all that their lead times might be pretty high yeah six eight nine months um, which is very difficult for a brand to launch a product and, and have to wait that long for cycle time and all that. Like you, that means you got to sit in a lot of inventory, which yeah. means your inventory ages, which means right, like yeah, capital city. But that's also, I mean, this is something that we kind of talk about uh, as an emerging community grows under that, that like is excited about new and innovative and they want all that. They forget that like when you really get to scale, like that's the stuff that that's how, that's how you get to that scale is starting to be able to, uh, plan out your supply chain long enough that an eight, nine month lead time like is okay because you're ordering what a million units a month or something like that, right? Like that's that's the scale you have to play at when you're in 
Costco and, yeah. and you know all that stuff. Yeah, but you would still want to make sure that the manufacturer is able to turn around those volumes within a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, because tying up capital and like th- there's one thing that I will always try to continue to scale and always outpace the scale of my customers. Mm-hmm. So if we just re- reverse engineer that for a second, it would be brand A launches this SKU with us. My capacity today, let's say on a single ship, is forty thousand units. Um, we kick in, you know, two shifts for them because they're cranking. They just got into like nationwide Walmart, Costco, Target, like they're cranking, right? If you run your numbers on that, right? Skew count and all that, like how long does it take me to fulfill that? And if that moment in time that I cannot have a designated team on that line producing for that brand, I increase capacity on that line, right? So I always have to stay in a worst case within a 10 week lead time for a brand so that product is fresh. They don't have to have so much capital tied up and they're able to know that I'm able to fulfill within this period of time for anything that they need, Mm -hmm. right? So for me as a manufacturer, I try to gauge the opportunity with the brand in the product and when they're pitching. So they're like, hey, we're pitching X um, retail partner. So no, no, no. Outside of efficiencies, like really into like innovation, which I really right, think right, is right. like the chunk of like what is exciting about you guys. Like, what was the spark for you where you re- like figured out or uh, found like something different that isn't just in the bars? Like, like we really enjoy a lot of the things that you create because they're different. Like, what was that initial like newness that you found you got excited about? Right now, like the last couple of years, like last couple of years, did you have any light bulb moments where you're like, oh, I got this? It's it, the thing is that it's it's. I don't think it'll ever stop for me. Like right now, I've created some pretty unique items, but it's like I'm already thinking about how can I, how can I continue to push, right? Like, and then I think through, it's so it's a format, right? So I'll give you an example, and I think this could be a product for for a really strong brand. And I'm gonna drop it right. Let's do it. So I think that when you look at a simple product, there's layers to the product. So say a cupcake, okay? has to be the right brand and it has to fit within the cupcake kind of demographic, right? So the consumer and cupcake have to be a good balance and a match. Now the cupcake standalone is a product, right? But then you take this cupcake and you add a filling. So now you have this filling inside. So now texture adjusts, right? But then you take it one step further and now you add a layer of enrobed kind of chocolate over the top of this cupcake, frosting per se. So now you have this birthday cake cupcake, vanilla cupcake with vanilla cream and a vanilla glaze. And then we got to add sprinkles on top. And then you add sprinkles. <laughs> and though, that's how I look at innovation, right? So mm-hmm. as you stack, you kind of say, damn, like I can take a great product, an innovative format, and I could then start to add texture and flavor and layers to this one product. That product... I believe is a winner. And I have like two or three brands that I think would crush with that product. Um, and I can do it. We should make one tomorrow. <laughs> we can't make something. Yeah. We're going to we, be yeah. talking about that. Yeah. So would that be the cupcake or are you thinking more of the female oriented brands or is it like my high stem pre-workout brand? I don't know. It's not, that's not the brand. Right. That's not the yeah. product for them. Right. Right. So it's knowing the format of the product to the end consumer. Mm. And it's not, the cupcake is not the, to the high stem kind of like <laughs> killer, like, you know, Listen, that would be ironically easy. funny, but yeah, right. And I enjoy a cupcake. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big <laughs> high stim guy. Like I love that, you know, and I enjoy cupcakes, mm-hmm. 
But from a positioning standpoint, from a brand, that's the element that you got to add, right? Because yeah. the consumer can like the product, but does the brand positioning align with the product to the consumer? And th that's why it's kind of- Yeah. So it seems like you're getting excited about different textures of the same product. Because we, and, and I don't mean to this rag on like standard old protein bars, but it's, you know, a uniform 47, whatever type of product that we mentioned. That's not what is exciting. It's because I use fillings in top of things, extrusions. Like it's the topic. newness. It's the newness to the market. Mm -hmm. So what gets me excited is that somebody gets gets this product in their hand and says, "Man, I've never seen a filled cupcake with 15 grams of protein, five grams of sugar at 200 calories. Like I've never seen this before. I could enjoy this product and still feel like I'm eating a delicious treat. That gets me excited. Like I think that's really cool because there's this newness to the everyday consumer." So can we talk about some of the ingredients that would play a role in that? Like the the cupcake itself might be almond flour or whatever. The stuffing, is that like a collagen type protein goo or whatever? Like how, or, what are some of the options available? So what you so each texture has to have like, you know, let's start with the base, right? So this base of a cupcake, a cupcake is fluffy, right? It's not a muffin, right? So a muffin is going to be a, a little bit of a denser dough, right? So for... A, a cupcake, you can you can make this with your almond flour, maybe a little bit of coconut flour. So you were able to play with it in different. So we're you know obviously that formula that blend is kind of like a full R and D to ensure that that texture matches up with the texture of an actual cupcake in market. Can you like quickly explain to just for people listening who don't have food science background the difference in these different batters? Why they are uh, they have different consistencies with what they come from? Because like. Most people are familiar with the fact that a, a waffle and a pancake are the same batter. You just cook them differently. But something like a, a, a muffin and, a, and a, a cupcake are fundamentally different. Like what is scientifically different when you create those you things? Go back to every single ingredient. Yeah. Every single ingredient at a different percentage impacts the product a different way. You can grab the same the same formula, right? That has like your almond flour and your butter and your eggs and all that. It has the same exact and you take this product here and you add a little bit more of, let's say, for example, a WPI. Let's just take a protein blend. We're going to take the same base formula, and now we're going to have a protein blend that are independently separate from each other. And our protein blend has three key ingredients. Let's just assume that this is the protein blend here, okay? It's whey protein isolate, whey protein concentrate, and collagen. Let's say these three, whether it's complete protein or not, we're going to say this is the protein blend, okay? If this formula A has 50% WPI, 25% WPC, and 25% of collagen, This and then formula B has 10% WPI, 40%, and the, the remaining amount in collagen, or C has a different ratio, just alone, the exact same base with the protein adjustment of WPI to WPC and collagen will completely and drastically change the texture of your product. This product, because WPI is a pure 90% form, will be a drier product, right? So, you know, in bar formulation, if you're using WPI over a milk protein, it's a completely different texture, similar in the baked goods, right? So every ingredient, as you go deeper into like what each ingredient does, if you have too much oil from your butters or you have the wrong butter, right? Like those things, if your butter temperature is even at the wrong temperature, your product texture changes. So 
Um, it's going to every single ingredient and understanding the impact that that single ingredient does into the formula. And then that's where R&D comes in. You're playing with those percentages to get to like the ideal texture. Others, so you, at this point, you're pretty familiar with like where these ranges are probably going to like land and everything. If someone comes to you and they say, no, I want like pure WPI and you just know it's going to be dry and terrible. What do you say? You just like say no? Or I don't think that. I don't one. I don't think that uh, the customer might just say, "Hey, I just want it to be WPI." There's got to be a reason behind that, right? Um, maybe they're just like an isolate-based brand, like they don't want any other type of protein. And then, then I would say, "Okay, cool." So then our deal here is that we're going to leverage other protein sources that we can. So can I lean on? I would. Say, can I lean on a collagen? Can I lean on other work to get protein? Okay. Um, and if you know, can I lean on peanut butter? Can I lean on almond flour? Like, where else can I grab protein from? Where WPI is my only protein source, and then I'll push the boundaries to see what's possible with that formulation until I get to a wall. And then once I get close to that wall, I'm like, hey, here's what's happening, and then I want you to experience it. So here are the samples, and then that usually kind of brings them back. Okay, this is, you know, this is day one, and it's a little hard. Right. And I'm yeah. like, all right, cool. Can you tell us, uh, we were, when you were out of the conversation, we were just looking at different baked goods and talking about the different dosages that you expect of proteins. There are some that are all collagen. There are some that are whey protein, co collagen uh, blends, different ways, all, all sorts of different blends. But like you pull out the additive proteins. How much protein comes from just making the good itself before you add in the whey protein and the collagen? Like, Is there a substantial amount of uh, protein already in the, so if you were to take uh, like a, say the average protein treat that we make is around 15 grams of protein. That's the sweet spot between great taste and like a functional benefit, right? Where you're not getting too little of protein. Like I think the right. 10, 12 range is like the, the lower side of protein count mm -hmm. where that 15, 16 is mid range. It's a sweet spot. And then 20, we really start to get to a very difficult spot to create a product unless you're willing to go up in calories and up in volume, mm -hmm. right? 15 is a sweet spot. I would say about four to five of it I can get from like the main ingredients, the base, and the rest comes from probably like any of the additive proteins. Some products a little bit higher. Yeah. Um, but I would say around 40, 30 to 40% probably comes from just the base formula because we use the almond. That's why we use the almond. Flour. Yeah. I was going to yeah. ask because yeah. like I've gotten back to the point where I'm no longer that against wheat flour like it's, right, it's right, the best right. you know i can eat sourdough bread again and everything we make it home and it's great but then yeah i see like things have gone away from that is it because of the push for like gluten free it's it is really, okay it's such a great call out I, one thing you guys have been talking a lot about like sports nutrition brands launching products um and that's great i love the fact that like these innovative brands are getting into this but i do think one of the things that a lot of people will find out when they get into it is that the actual consumer that's actually like driving the millions of dollars of revenue is probably the mainstream person who cares way less about the isolate amount and way more about the gluten-free call-out, right? That's when you're in Walmart or Sam's Club, right? that's really the buyer that's making a lot of the income. Um, is there and really, I think that's where, even if you are a sports nutrition brand, I think you you should look at how do you appeal to the most amount of people possible while adding true value to your target audience? For sure. I think that, that there's a magic in that, right? Because yeah. then the then the wife will buy the product for the kid that enjoys it because the husband's like, you know what I mean? Like there's like this this whole family effect that can enjoy the product versus it being so dialed in 
yeah. to that one. We had to ask that question for our content because there's like, you know, 500 people in the world that know this stuff, but there's millions of people that want to know them a little bit more. Right. Right. Uh, and as fitness is growing so much. Um, so with the current state of the things that you create, like it, what, what is the, the call for collagen? Is that a fad or is that a helpful ingredient for you to use or? Yeah, actually for, for us, we use it because there is a level of chewiness and texture that you get with collagen because at the end of the day, it's gelatin, right? So mm-hmm. it does improve the texture of our products. Like if you grab a cookie, for example, like the reason we use collagen in the cookie is because there is a chewiness aspect that we get from the collagen that if I pull it out, you won't get it. So then, okay. And I don't have to use it. It's, we're going to lean on another source. So then maybe I'm leaning on a fiber syrup or, you know, uh, honey or some other level of an ingredient that could help bring in the chewiness aspect. If that is the texture that the customer wants. I mean, I've had a lot of your cookies and chewy is the word that I would use for that. Like (laughs) it is so enjoyable as compared to like a lot of the, you know, the, the problem with when you talk about functional uh, functional foods is like there's ones that really tasted great, but the nutrition facts kind of reflected that, right? And I, I you kind of mentioned before a balance between the functionality of like you know better for you and yeah. also the actual flavor of it. And yours are a, a very sweet spot where I can enjoy it, of course, but also not destroy my diet for the day. Uh, and you think collagen has a lot to do with that. I think it has to deal with the texture and then we, we lean on it obviously because it, it helps us in the formulation and customers from our customers, right? Maybe not the end consumer, but there is this kind of like, um, you know, there's evolution to education on ingredients, right? And so you guys do a lot of work on it, but where vital proteins did a really good job on educating the everyday consumer on the benefits of collagen. Mm-hmm. And I think they set a really strong stage for a, a big portion of female demographics uh, that are consuming better for you snacks. Yeah. And, you know, because they put in all that effort and, and all that, I think that there's this everyday consumer that finds that value or sees that on the label and says, oh, that's awesome. Right. Mm-hmm. Like today I just got a text from one of our customers saying, hey, can I actually call this a collagen XYZ? And I'm like, well, you're, you're not really doing an, a health claim here. What you're saying is that you're positioning it from a marketing statement, right? So you're positioning your product that it has as much because she does have a good, uh, like it's, it's half of a daily dose. So she, you know, they do have a, a good count in it. So I'm like, you know, technically it's more of a marketing thing than, than a health claim thing. Um, but people are leaning into it because the average consumer finds benefit in it. I have more questions about ingredients, collagen especially, but that brings us into another area is that it almost feels like you got played a little bit of lawyer there or whatever. And Brands are going to want to label a product that you make possibly in a way that, you know, maybe isn't something that you would do personally. Like, how do you deal with that? I try to stay out of all of the personal statements outside of QA, like health checks, claims, et cetera, that are like, for example, like a low sugar or claim or low fat or... Uh, those those FDA like right. triggered claims yes. are the ones that we're very strict on. Gotcha. Okay. Outside of that, it's more of like a marketing kind of like what is going to help you sell this product. Mm-hmm. That's not on me, right? I just need to make sure that you're not saying anything that is going to get you in trouble and then it's going to get us in trouble. Okay. Well, okay. So I'm going to do a couple of things here. If I make some outrageous puffery claim, like best collagen bar in the world or whatever, 
which that's kind of I think that's puffery, and I put that on something you produced. Would you would you be upset with that at all? Like, you know that that's more of like a. I think a lot of stuff that I make is pretty good, <laughs> I, but but I think that there's you know that's more marketing okay. than I think it is uh, for me to get involved in. Um, I would I don't think anybody's said anything like that or would say that. I would probably guide them against. Like I will give them my two cents. Like hey, like you know you probably don't want to be so like boastful on on this claim. Uh, make sure it's substantiating and that you can back it. Right? Like what do you have that this is? Yeah, you're going to be able to back this. And what if I found a new a new syrup that I said was a fiber, but it wasn't exactly like the FDA never agreed to that. And I claim it as no, that's that now you started to fiber. get it. No, that's that's different. Because right now, like now you're messing with label claims. Right. And so like now you're getting into a world that that is regulated mm-hmm. and you have to have your shit together. Mm-hmm. And so that goes into like if the ingredient isn't prop like properly set up from the supplier with the COAs, the right claims, and we're not tying into those claims, you're not putting it on your label. You're out. Like that's that's, that's, that's a stop. A gotcha. Right. Okay. Cool. Cool. So back to this. I appreciate that. I, yeah. I'm the kind of person I care very deeply about the quality of the things that we help customers. No, absolutely. Um, but there's also a point where you are a service provider and you sell something. And to be completely frank with anyone who listens to this, like you're not actually liable for any of that. Like, any of the claims that you just talked about, you're not liable at all. Like the the uh, firm that sells the product to the consumer, meaning the brand that you are selling this to, they're liable for it. Outside of you um, providing them the wrong nutrition facts or something like that, like you're not liable for any of that. So the fact that you care, I mean, oh, that yeah. vibes very hard with with my personal ethos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're trying to be in this, com- you are in this community, everything, and you don't want that black eye. Like people talk, we all talk. We know where the this, this industry like, is very, very small. Yeah. And not just the sports nutrition industry, but like just the, the health and wellness industry. Like there's one thing and it's that I will hold my reputation above everything and everyone. And I believe that the only way I will ever be able to build something of great value for the long term is if I never do really wrong by anybody. Mm-hmm. And that comes at a lot of expense to me sometimes. Um, and I could have done things that should have been done. And I just rather not, you know, go down that route because it's not the best thing for me and my reputation long term. Um, and that's just, that's, that's why I am. So that's why I care so much about that because it's one, it's the product that I'm formulating and manufacturing. So then what is, what is that signal to the industry? What is that signal to the market? If I'm okay with X, Y, Z being done, right? That's like, a, oh. Michael do whatever. Like it doesn't matter. Like he's like, all right, I care. He'll let you get away with it. Hell no, that's not that's not that's not my DNA. So I think that there's this like almost like underlining. Yeah. I don't do it because uh, there's this liability thing, which is like that is you know that's great. That is there's not this like huge you know load that a manufacturer is taking from a liability standpoint. But at the end of the day, I mean technically, yeah, it's gonna the, the finger's gonna be pointed somewhere. Yeah. Well, should we see that with powder, back. with powder manufacturers? Like, well, if they're letting that ingredient in the door, how do we know they're doing the testing on this? And then problem, automatically, you know? it takes less than five seconds. Automatically, there's an association with that for a simple, just something so small, mm-hmm. right? One ingredient, which is not small, it's huge, right? One ingredient, one customer on one occurrence, and that is now these. That is what that brand, that manufacturer is known for, and and that signals the industry uh, in two seconds. <laughs> and also, like you, I don't know, I don't want to make implications, but you seem pretty busy. So, the line time that you allot to a customer 
you have opportunity cost where you could be giving it to someone else. So to give it to quality people who are going to, you know, maybe, maybe not uh, champion your brand alongside that, that's important. You know, we work with a lot of manufacturers that never get to see the light of day because most brands don't want to stay where they get their stuff made. Yeah. Um, I think functional foods are, it seems to be a little bit different, you know. Uh, there's some brands that are very careful. There's some, yeah. there's others that, you know, it's okay. But I've yeah. had, I mean, I've had brands come in and film and like, we're like taping the logos and like, you know, but it's okay. And I respect that because I think that, you know, to each their own, like I'm yeah. not trying, I would never try to leverage the brand to gain publicity awareness or to pick up another, that's not, I don't care. I don't yeah. need it. I, I, they, it will come to me in different ways, For but sure. I, I, yeah, I respect the brand kind of privacy or direction on that. Yeah, it is tough because I think, I hope we all know that, you know, getting it done here does not mean it's going to be successful, but at the same time, it is your innovation. You, you know, they, there's a reason they come to you. you. You kind of hold the keys to creating the innovative new experiences for consumers. And you should be known for that, you know, like I, at least in my eyes. I, I, it's almost yeah. on a personal level too. Like I, I want Mike Walfaro to be the guy that's really helping drive that functional food industry forward more than I care about Master Food Lab having the credibility as the manufacturer that is driving that forward because i think on a personal level i just care from an individual and yes by default my company right is the one that is is executing on that but man if i could if i can just get a new a different product or a specific active to the right brand that could be a win for one customer like yeah. like it's a win for me like it, it's a win to see that i'm advancing this industry forward and that i'm a thought leader within that that means a lot to me so to your point recently you keep you keep kind of mentioning that we're in the infancy of um dysfunctional foods really like like where it can be i'm sure josh all is going to remind us that they've been around for 20 years and big 100 was out in the 90s but what we're experiencing right now where it is actually edible it's actually enjoyable right. and there's a real benefit coming out of it other than just the protein content there's so, there's so much more runway for this it reminds me a lot of like a point in supplements where there were proprietary blends and there was actually like some proprietary thing happening where you should give some credit to that formulator for what they put together um in a lot of cases now in dietary supplements like it's really just throwing a bunch of stuff in a container that uh, anyone could probably find on Amazon and make in their house. And for the most part, I, I, like really like, like, like a lot, of, a lot of us could put together a pretty decent pre-workout in our kitchen from goods that may have been, they may have not been bought from bulk supplements, right? Like, <laughs> like you could probably put that together if you wanted to, but the things that you've been creating recently feel very special, feel unique. It does not feel like you could just make it at home because you read a, a baking. Um, and so for a lot of those reasons, man, I, like, I want you to be known for those things that you make, you know, it, 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 it can be frustrating when a, a brand comes out with all these baked goods and, and they're seen for, it, but I really know it's coming from this really cool lab in Florida. You know? I don't know. Foods are, foods are special, you know? Yeah. It, yeah and, and it's true. It, you know, food has been around for ever, right? Like, and it's something we, and we need it every day to survive. And it's kind of like, it's a part of our life, but like. I, I almost look at it as like, okay, how fun and creative can we get with something that we are used to consuming? And then how can I add a level of functionality to that? And I think that that is where it's still, there's room for a real strong growth to happen is where the functionality becomes purpose-driven in the format. 
Yeah. And that's what we're getting excited to maybe ideate oh, tomorrow yeah. morning and everything. Like, so we go back to Supply Side West 2023, where I asked, like, can we have, what about like getting branded or good, like special novel ingredients into functional foods? And Ryan of Fitness and Forest slash Fitbutters was standing next to me and he said, well, nobody cares. Now, to Ryan's credit, he's getting Fitbutters into Publix and Kroger and Walmart, and like these massive chains, or maybe his, his demographic, he's not chasing that. I think, though, more similar to you guys, that I think like maybe we can develop something that is a little bit, a little bit more functional. And it might cost a little bit more than a standard product. It's going to be on shelves of Publix, but that is going to serve like a, a functional purpose. I think that's where we could have some fun. And I think that that's where it's, you have to look at the brand and the consumer and where it's being positioned against what product format best serves the value for that end consumer. Because in Ryan's case with Fit Butters, it's a great tasting protein nut butter. The average consumer, the everyday consumer in those retail stores, which is mass market retail stores, doesn't care whether or not there's an active ingredient of 500 milligrams. And he's correct. Yes. The everyday consumer that is walking into your Publix or your Walmart or your Target because his brand strategy against his product, those are the retailers to reach that end consumer that he has the formula. His formula for the success of that product is dialed in. And it's not the functional ingredient. So for him to add the functional ingredient, his product isn't the ideal solution win for him, right? But if you were to go and create a purpose-driven product and functional foods for a brand, right? And there's many that we can name that are really big into functional ingredients or science or whatever the case may be. Like if you're a keto brand, Perfect Keto, and you're launching a product, like the importance of your formula matching up with what the ethos of Perfect Keto is means more to that brand than a, just an everyday consumer product because the consumers of that product are specific to keto-based products. I think uh, Ryan is wrong, but right at the same time, <laughs> yeah. right? Because of course he is right that people don't care if there is cognizant added to their um, brownie because they don't know what cognizant is, right? However, I also think that Ryan is actually wrong because in his own brand's name, Fit Butters, people are purchasing it because they do care that it's a fitter option, right? And I think that it lies in the usage of the food in a Trojan horse. We use this, this phrase Trojan horse a lot, these things, because I don't think anyone cares that Fit Butters has added protein. But I do think they care that it is a more fit option. And why is it more fit? Because there's added protein, right? So people care about the benefit they're getting. They probably don't care about the research behind whatever it is that they're getting, but they care about the end use case of it, right? I think and I think the big win, we got to use Ghost as an example with Ghost Energy. They're able to get a product out to the mainstream, very popular, and people don't know why but they feel really, really good, better than the average energy drink when they drink a ghost energy. I would ask you, how much do you, how many of those do you think are actually sold? Let's just- uh, I can tell you right 750 now. 750 per lot. minute. 750 yeah. per minute, yeah. Okay, awesome, perfect. That's a shit ton. So they sell a lot of energy <laughs> yeah. drinks, right? How many consumers can tell you the active ingredients exactly. with the doses that are in that product? But you got a gram of carnitine. I would tell you very little. Exactly, you got a gram of carnitine, and I think people who are low on carnitine drink that thing and they're like, I feel good. Don't know why. Don't care. I like, like it. Taste yeah, is good. Exactly. Product positioning is right. They're sold in my favorite stores or the stores that I go to that are along, and it makes me feel good. So yeah. if we could do that with our stuffed cupcake, 
or whatever like that i think that it could eventually win yeah but that ingredient you need to make it the cost work and everything that grandma carnitine is a grand that's a amount of carnitine that monster or whoever else doesn't have to pay for so right. that goes to yeah. has to they have a higher cost and so i think with some of these decisions you either got to have a more expensive product or you're going to have a lower margin and that's just how it's going to be Yes. And so then you start to get into the business side of things, mm -hmm. right? Which we, we are very well aware of the understanding behind the product and what the product can retail for. But if you really want to have a great product, like you got to be okay with maybe giving up a couple cents mm -hmm. to push the boundary on a formula that's going to allow you to get to a different consumer that's going to, you know, that they're going to find the value that's above the everyday XYZ product, right? Because the everyday brownie let's say is going to cost you 50 cents 70 cents i don't know how much a little debbie sells her brownies for but they're cheap right where you go into like you know vitamin shop and you're probably paying you know between 297 to 349 a unit yeah i think that there's a deliberate difference or a, a difference in how deliberate people are in consuming those things when i bought i don't buy but if i were to buy a little debbie's you're buying like a <laughs> box of like 36 or whatever right and you're like no 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 right like it's 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 a couple of them whatever but when you buy like a 12 pack of core brownies you're like all right i'm gonna have this brownie with my meal three snack and it's good. like it, you're like there's a right. you're there's deliberately a, consuming yeah. these uh for that fitness or you're gonna take it on the go because it's convenient you can put it in your bag and you have it as a snack if you're driving in your car you're not able to get to your thing at least you know you're consuming some level of nutrition that has your protein you know yeah and that's convenience. there's convenience right yeah. Yeah. And the individual packing obviously adds a lot to that. I don't think you probably manufacture any that are coming in like a family box. No, right? like the clamshells and yeah. all that. No. Interesting. I wish we had brought some here that we could talk about. Uh, we have a whole separate <laughs> video of us doing a lot of tasting. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. A few of the things off YouTube. Yeah. 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 There's some fun stuff. So back to ingredients now. Okay. Collagen. Collagen's hot. Do you, do you think it's going to stay hot? I think just like every uh, ingredient that kind of takes the limelight, there's this there's a cycle of yeah. how popular it is, and then there's kind of like this this wave, right? Where it's like, how long has creatine been a great ingredient in so many products? <laughs> but still, now, X amount of years later, it's one of the hottest ingredients in in, cons in everyday consumers' products. And the everyday consumer is learning more and more about the benefits of it and trusting it even further. Mm -hmm. So I think that every ingredient has like its ability to to really like skyrocket. And then the brand that carries that ingredient as an active that really takes off really helps drive that. But then there's this lingering effect of like mm -hmm. just the everyday consumer figuring it out mm -hmm. and then doing their research, their personal research. Then they kind of like, yeah. they're like, damn, you know, and then that kind of spreads. So um, there there is a few. Um, I hope that we're able to put some great ingredients into some some functional foods that are haven't really been seen before that can catch that fire yeah. with, with the right combo i especially think with ai and uh the age of information our access to information that these trends are going to become quicker to to uh, peak uh and, and more condensed because we're going to be able to easily find these things and, and educate and understand um and i also think that a lot of uh, these formulas just because collagen maybe isn't as hot in five years doesn't mean you're not going to be using it for its function in baking, right? Like that, no, that right, chewiness, no. maybe they'll stop claiming it on the label, right? Like great source of collagen, but that's still going to be a part of that baking process because again, at the end of the day, they only really care about how it tastes. Like, right. And that goes back into the ingredients. There's, there's certain ingredients that we have to use, um, like 
baking soda, yeah. right? Or, or in like a baking powder. And like, you know, we just need to use it for certain ingredients to have the leveling agent and rise the right way, right? For it take its shape and its form. Doesn't yeah. mean you want to claim it, but sure. we need it. Whenever baking soda was discovered, I'm sure it was a fad for, you know, 10 well, years. Still is. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of sodium bicarbonate. It's got all kinds of research with like metality and endurance, all that. So I want to, I was going to, I was going the opposite direction. I want to lean harder into collagen. Could we do an all collagen bar? Would it just taste like gelatin? So I've had a customer ask me if they could do 10 grams of collagen in a cookie. Yes. And 10 grams of collagen in a specific product that might weigh around 50 grams, let's say, is such a high dose that it becomes like a gum. Right now, the gelatin effect of collagen has passed its, a, its point of like, now this texture, you either have to be okay with this texture being in th this way, right? And it's non-traditional in that product. Let's say we were doing a cookie. It's non-traditional in that product. There is other ways around it. Like there's still a way for me to get 10 grams of protein. I mean, 10 grams of collagen in that product, but the reformulation stage and the other active ingredients that I have to use make it way more difficult to get to a nice, soft and chewy baked cookie. Right. Can I ask, um, this is going to be a little bit long-winded, but I hope people know where I'm going with this. In free workout, uh, we see a, a, a rising size of servings because, right, you want to go three, six, 10, 12 grams of citrulline. So the scoop gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And no one really complains about that. Well, some people blame the scoop getting bigger, but that's that's okay to happen. In your case, to get a 10 grams of uh, collagen, couldn't you increase the size of the overall? Unless, is, there, yeah. is there a standard brownie size for you? Like what keeps you from saying, right. sure. So it's not just, and says, so, yeah, I left one key component out, which was that I had to stay at 110 total calories. That was a request by the, by the brand. Yeah. Okay. So it's 110 calories, 10 grams of total oh, protein. Wait, the brand asked you to add something that contains calories, but don't increase the calories. Yeah. Like mind. there's okay. limits, right? There's these macro targets <laughs> that the brand is. So we're playing between like the ingredients that we can leverage and we can use. Um, and now more and more like, you know, like the no seed oils and, uh, no artificial X, Y, Z, right? Like the, all those things, they add these complexities and these nuances to formulation. And so like, for example, like chocolates, like it's very rare and hard to find no seed oil chocolates because the way you form, right. And is usually using like a palm kernel oil or a palm oil, right? So there's these ingredients that like, look like very limited, um, sources, for certain products, right? So then it's, okay, cool. Let's not use that ingredient. Let's do it without it. Um, so in this specific, it was like target macros, 110 calories, 10 grams of protein, all coming from collagen. Couldn't have any other protein source. So it got, it, it was difficult to, to be able to hit that and then keep it in a texture form. I still think it's possible. I just think that I have to get extremely creative with fiber syrups and, you know, other things, but then you add the fiber syrup in there. And what are you doing? You're making it increase the gumminess and, and the texture even further. So it's like, you know, that is the bigger, that is the bigger challenge. It's like when there's somebody stuck on something because it's like so tight and they were a really big brand, so tight on the call out on collagen, for example, for 10 grams, um, that it makes it difficult to create a great tasting product. 110 calories sounds insane. It's very low. That's crazy. Very low. I don't know if that's necessary. Can you, if we turn it into a jello cup with just a bunch of dumplings? <laughs> uh, yeah, it would be easier to get that to be like a, a spread than a cookie. Are you down to do that? Yeah, we, oh. we, can, we can definitely go that route. Okay. Awesome. So, do you, is there, is there a, uh, we've talked about brands and I'm trying not to call it brands. Is, 
what's the perfect blend of collagen and whey protein? Like if you like, there are some right around right around that um five grams of collagen is a sweet spot. In a sixty gram serving. Okay, yeah, because that, the 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 ratio matters, ratio. right? Yeah. Uh, what's the whey dose on top of that collagen in that sixty gram serving? Uh, whey would be like your whey blends would be more okay. than your collagen. Usually they're in front of it on the label. Yeah, yeah. This is something that no one calls out though. It's funny. Everyone loves to call it five grams of collagen, but no one likes to call it how much whey protein right. they put in it. So, and it's because protein's protein, and so then the source of that protein, although it matters, the more popular ingredient to call out that gives the marketing ability to mm-hmm. to have this claim for their lean on and then potentially appeal to that end consumer collagen is more of an ingredient that is newer from a marketing perspective to be able to get to that consumer because the consumer is looking for that more than it's saying wheat protein concentrate. well and also i think that five grams of collagen is a lot more of a positive call out than uh let's say eight and a half grams of whey protein even if it is more whey protein, most people want 25 grams of whey protein. Right. Because of the industry standard. Yeah. Right. Because you so, can take a scoop of WPC you know, or whatever protein, yeah. and it's going to have an average of 24 to 25 grams Absolutely. of Absolutely. But five grams of collagen sounds great right. because most yeah. people are not actually really quantifying how much collagen they're getting from their uh, meat, hopefully. But uh, whey protein is something that people are so like granularly aware of how much they typically get that I think anything less than 20 grams sounds pretty bad. I mean, you guys are, um, you understand the ingredients a little bit more. You do a lot more homework onto the um, science behind all these active and functional ingredients. Would you say that whey protein, just whey protein in general, is more compared to general protein that you would get from a chicken or a steak source and all that? Like in the everyday consumer, like if you're going to go through your day and you're like, you're going to eat about 120 grams of protein today, right? Maybe you take a 25 gram shake. Maybe you have a, you know, eight ounces of chicken. You know, but it's more comparable to the protein source if you're just consuming protein, where I think collagen acts independent of your protein. They're not looking at it to get the protein source. They're looking right. at it for the benefits yeah. of collagen itself. And that's a lot of a lot of credit to Vital Proteins and a lot of the companies that kind of push a lot of that. Can we go in the complete opposite direction and either go vegan or dairy free? Like that's we're gonna eliminate eliminate whey, possibly eliminate collagen. Now I have Pea protein rice for shakes. Oftentimes, it's pea protein rice protein blends. Now they, you know, they all science the science again. This is where it always goes back to the individual impact of that ingredient in your formula. Because mm-hmm. if you just put, let's just say pea protein is very popular. Most people know pea protein. If I just use pea protein, you would have a gummy like a paste, right? Pea protein absorbs moisture. And so then understanding the impact of pee in your formula and also gives you like that earthy kind of like aftertaste. Right. So it's like, I can't just formulate a vegan product with pea protein. Tomorrow I'm going to show you guys a a vegan cookie has a hit market. It's unreal. But I had to use fava bean and I had to use rice and I had to use other ingredients to balance the profiles. But yet that cookie has been sitting in my R and D shelf for six months in an unsealed, no nitrogen flushed package, and it is still soft like the second day I made it. Nice. It is insane. So are you are you holding everything for that amount of time or whatever? I try to keep uh, everything. Right. Like even even after it goes out of my R and D room, I put it in a box, I label it, and it's stored. Yeah. Uh, for what retention. if I'm a young aggressive brand and I don't? I just want to like sell it, like give it to me as soon as possible. We're not going to do any like stability testing. What do you? 
do you allow that or anything or like there's products that I could uh, I am a little bit more understanding of the impact over time on than a newer product that has never been done before. So if we're playing with this whole new like new ingredients that have never like the vegan cookie that we did for the first time, right? When when I did that for the first time, I said, okay, I really need to test this product because it's the first time they were going full vegan and we're using like fava bean proteins and stuff like that that are in products that we don't know how it's going to react over time, right? So those I like to be a little bit more careful from like initial conversation to launch date than like if you ask me for a protein cookie that I can use whatever ingredients I wanted to use. So, in yeah. most cases here, this is just like understanding fundamentals and adding tool sets in, right? So like if you're adding something like a, a variable that you've never seen before, obviously you're a little bit more worried. But do you sign any sort of indemnification with people? Like if, if this guy wants to just launch it? I mean, we have a contract with our yeah. customers. Yeah. So yeah, getting back to that, that whole collagen situation. So this brand wanted you to do something that became unviable, non-viable or whatever. Were you charging for R&D time? Was it you doing that? Do you have an R&D? You have an R&D employee, I believe. Like, do you charge yeah, so hourly or is there consulting involved? We do. We do take on R&D projects. Most of the time, an R&D project that we're taking on because we're busy is one that's trying to get to market. So if it's just someone playing around that wants to just mess around with some, you know, functional food, doesn't have a direct path to marketability, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't because it's just... I am not built with the infrastructure to just play games at that level. But if it's, hey, I have this idea for a product and you know they've pitched it and I feel that I have the machinery and the capabilities to be able to create that product, then depending on the customer, the relationship of the customer, right? Like if, if you guys sent me out somebody and we're like, hey, Mike, here's XYZ brand. We've been working with them for quite some time. They're awesome guys. Like they've been thinking about getting into the functional food space for quite some time. They just haven't found the right product or the right, you know, um, time. You know, they need a little bit of guidance in the space. That would be a little bit of a different approach for me. And I would almost take on that customer without a real R&D fee to get that product to market for them. Because there's this relationship in place. I know that there's no like BS happening here. Like this is this is kind of like a, so then there's that, right? Which is like a, a human element and relationship kind of understanding. And so there's no R&D time that I, I, I assume that cost, right? Okay. I'm investing in that brand because I believe the potential of that investment, of that time that I'm investing is going to pay off over the long haul to get that product in market. But the other side is, yes, we do have R&D that we can create from scratch and for a fee. Cool. Okay. You're, 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 it, it seems like, I don't, I don't mean to assume, but in most cases here, you're making something that is unique that you haven't created before in terms of like the specific skew. So there's always going to be some R&D. Oh, yeah. Right. So uh, how much R&D there is for this new. And even, and even varies. with the same format, like even the same cookie. Yeah. I try not to give the same cookie to anybody else. Like if I give you a cookie, I don't want to give you a cookie mm -hmm. that has the same formula. I'm going to say, Hey, I already have a customer market that has XYZ formula. I want to protect that customer. Mm -hmm. It might come at hurting me because of additional R&D time, playing with different formulations and ingredients, the time to be able to nail that product. But at the end of the day, I've given you a little bit more runway and protection. And then I'm working on something for you that's going to be unique for you that ties more into you. So I, I care a lot about that aspect because I can, I can, I feel better about giving them the runway that it's not a me too product for everybody. Well, when you look back over the years in the sports nutrition industry and, and functional foods, there's been a few crazes in fads in, in foods that uh, didn't go that way, right? Baked bars, uh, cereal bars. 
there's been a lot of situations where you know someone's supposedly been the first to market but then a bigger brand launched it even bigger because they went to the manufacturing i mean let's be realistic like a small brand comes to you and they can do a small launch and then a big brand comes to you and they likes the product yeah has a bigger distribution you know pipeline and has an ability to drive the volume on that product much faster yeah and do it right by it and do it right right because that that small brand might have had that innovative item in market that created a little bit of a spark but then that secondary brand really has the ammo and the fuel to light it on fire and that's where you know i can see how it gets very easy to give the same product to this to a bunch of customers and then be very profitable at in, you know improving your efficiencies for that one item right because if you think about it if you're making a baked bar and all I had to do was change a layer, topping, flavor system, ingredient, et cetera. But it's the exact same format on the same machinery. What it allows me to do as a manufacturer is to create strong efficiencies. So now my profitability and my overall efficiency of producing the product is through the roof. Because you could batch out all of the things that are not different. 90% of my raw material is going to be the exact same for it. doesn't matter if you want A, B, C, or D brand, right? The process is the exact same from the mixing method to the, you know, the baking to whatever. And the machinery that it needs to be able to make that product is the same. So when you're doing the same exact product every single day over time on machinery that is built for high volume, that's where you find efficiencies scale in manufacturing. Um, I'm built a little bit different. I, I am able to do that, but because I want to be more on the innovation side, I believe that I have to create the ability for the brand to drive that innovation, at least give them the chance to drive that innovation to a point, um, or or at least work on the uniqueness and the and the and the format enough so that the brand has the runway to make it happen. I can't even blame manufacturers, however that look at that, especially in foods where it isn't just vitamin shop and GNC and specialty brick and mortar, where you can take it to Target, Walmart, Sam's Club, you know, all these. And that, that's actually a good point, right? Because it's, say there's this protein brownie that is popular in market and vitamin shop and GNC carry it. And the, and the consumer that is going to a vitamin shop and a GNC usually is probably like your fitness goer, sports nutrition, you know, advocate. Specific type of personality, specific person. You turn around and you go to Costco and Costco says, hey, I want to place the exact same product under Kirkland Signature. That's a different ballgame. And, and it realistically, the brand that is selling into Vitamin Shop or GNC for that consumer, even if the product hits Kirkland Signature, the positioning of Kirkland Signature to the end consumer is a different directive that I, I would feel comfortable playing it. At that moment, I would say, hey, this makes sense for me as a manufacturer. And I think there's enough of a security gap between the brand that is selling to GNC and Vitamin Shop and Kirkland Signature, mm -hmm. right? There's just two different things. So yeah. I, that's where I would say it's okay. Yeah, it's tough. I, I think I can speak for both Mike and me with this, where we like we do care about the underdog or the innovator or the first to market. We have a lot of friends that are small businesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, we also have a lot of friends that are international and like, it can be really disheartening when you see like that, that, that real innovator who really found something special and really brought it to market, but they have a total of 500 consumers. And then you see, you know, your 
international big conglomerates who you know can carry it better. Like you want to support the underdog, but you also know that for the efficiencies of the business, for, for, for that innovation to really shine, like it has to get out there. Yeah. It is, it, it, it's a tough battle to look at for sure. hundred percent. It is getting back to the R and D thing a little bit. Um, so on, earlier on our podcast, we, we had a podcast with caged and we were, they were talking about, they were running, um, their formulator was doing like he had done 170 different batches of a protein bar. He was messing with in his home oven. Now, does that, is that obviously it's cool to be able to tinker with stuff and everything. Does that help like bring it to actual scale manufacturing though? Or like, is, is my home oven a good enough R and D facility to mess with this stuff at all? Or am I just kind of spinning wheels doing? I think it's, if you look at it from a product formulation standpoint, it is the first step that we would take. It is still done in a small scale. It's still done lab batch, you know, a thousand to 2000 total grams. It's still small scale, right? Because what you're trying to do there is you're trying to initially see from the ingredients being used at the percentage of those ingredients being used, what is the impact and the end result of those ingredients coming together? Mm -hmm. So I do believe that that is a first, it's a good first test, right? Cool. So in their, in their kind of a stage, right, where they created all these different um, variations of bars, that is a very good first start, right? That gives us as a manufacturer ammo. And we have a strong, if, if all of that was documented properly, we have a strong foundation to lean back on and say, hey, okay, what was test 20? What, what did it look like? Like, what was your percentage of, you know, uh, binding syrups to, you know, proteins to, like, what was the percentage of all these breakdowns? And so like, what was the process? What was the missing method? Did you bake it? Did you not bake it? Like, how did you create this product? And then if you're able to fine tune it, cause that's really what R and D is all about. It's like these small little tweaks, like small, that like you're constantly trying to, to find the, the perfect balance of these ingredients to create the best product, both for now and for its life on shelf. Yeah. Uh, this trip originally for the record was almost a cage trip. So I want to thank you for introducing us to master foods. <laughs> we were supposed to come down and talk about all the foods that they were doing back then. Oh, I didn't uh, even. I didn't yeah. That's how we got all got connected. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, for, um, for, for which one? I thought he just cage. bombarded us. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. uh, no, no, we originally, yeah. uh, gotcha. yeah, I think, uh, cage wanted us to come down for the launch, but eventually the cage launch didn't, didn't happen last year. So yeah, we ended up just coming down ourselves, which. Yeah. I still, and I so, still think they have a, a really good product format, which is like you're taking something. We worked on it for about a year with them. A couple okay, different okay. products. I, I didn't even realize. Okay. I, I just, brought, did. I just oh, brought, yeah. the, I brought that up knowing nothing. I thought. Oh, yeah. oh I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, well, actually, to be fair, this is almost a year ago at this point. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is uh, a bit ago. What, at the GNC conference, they had show, showed up and shown off bars and crumb cakes. Right. Yeah. I didn't um, know you were involved. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That was... And we were really, I mean, still very excited about what that could have been, right? And I think it's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll end up seeing what ends up happening there. But that chrome cake was fire. And it was, was fucking fire. And it was taking just a real true base formula of almost like that in between like what a cake should be and what a brownie is and like finding this beautiful balance between it, right? And then you're adding this layer, right? So going back to this layered effect of like how to create uniqueness, we're adding this layer on the top of a crumb right? Whether one was like an, an Oreo cookie crumb and the other one was like this cinnamon crumble. Mm -hmm. Like now you have this texture adjustment and flavor adjustment to this nice, like, you know, pretty different base 
that's how I love finding uniqueness, right? And then you find a great brand, right, with good operators and a mission that are that have awesome distribution and a good pipe. Like that's what creates magic. I think that's what allows real success to happen. And then behind the brand, behind the product, you have the desire to drive that skew to become a winning product. And that can't be, it can't be left, right? Like you have to have the brand want to make that a winning skew because it's not just drop and let it go. It's, it's how do you get that to become a primary product in your arsenal of however many products you have, right? Because most sports nutrition or wellness brands have multiple SKUs. So how do you have the focus on that SKU to be a winner over time? Okay, I have to ask you a kind of hard question then. Some brands are going to hear this and be like, oh, I want to, uh, some guy shows up with a ton of money. He's got a briefcase full of money. And I want that crumb cake. Like, what do you do? Is that cage crumb let's, cake? Let's, take, let's take this as a- Michael's build different. <laughs> let's take this as a real scenario. Yeah. First thing that I do is I call my contact at cage. Okay. It's the first thing I do. Mm -hmm. And I say, here's my scenario. Yeah. Um, I would really like to give it to you guys because I believe in you and we worked on this for X amount of time. Right. But I had this opportunity. Yeah. And based on what they say is where I go. Because I think at least I gave the- person that came to me first with the with the idea and the concept that we worked on and we created the product with the opportunity to say yay or nay mm -hmm. and then from there i'm gonna do a business sense yeah happen, I'm, right I'm so i'm gonna you. give it to the next brand yeah and even and i even i'll take that even a step further i would even say that if a product is brought to market under a brand that i believe is a very unique skill and i believe has legs on its own and the brand falters and does not continue to push that product I am almost obligated to find a home for it. That's how I feel. What I was saying before about the specialty of your innovation is like, it's on you to make sure that it gets to the right home. And that's what's so exciting is because I feel that there's a little bit of shaping a movement. I feel like there's this little bit. It's probably not a big impact. It's probably not. Like, but to me, yeah. it's exciting because I'm like, man, like I could almost say this product this positioning, these ingredients, this format fits that brand because of that distribution channel to, to win with that consumer. And it's like, I'm almost looking at it as a full circle picture. And then all I'm doing is placing the dots in place, right? Yeah. I can create the product over here. I got to find the right brand. To most of the times I, I can, I can kind of tell you like which brand I think will be a winner with what product. And then it comes down to the brand, you know, this desire to yeah. push that product or even have the, the need for one to launch a functional food or, you know, there's all that. But then I know that once that hits shelf, there's a really, really strong chance, even to the point where it's like, I could, I could tell you right now from a GNC or a vitamin shop perspective, what items would excite them to want to put it on shelf. Like against what brand, against what product. And there's probably products that under the wrong brand are not the right fit for them. So, so you got to, it's like, you got to find all of that has to hit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we see it all day. I mean, you see it in pre-workout. You know, that's funny. We like rave about a pre-workout from one uh, company, this formula. And like, there's similar ones at other brands that we don't rave about. But it's like, uh, there's more of an experience of just what's inside of the package, right? The the whole consumer's experience, the buying experience, the, like, the brand that you're getting bought into, the community that you may or may not have access to, right? There's a whole feeling to it. I mean, the packaging itself, which is kind of out of your control, that is a huge uh, aspect as well. Totally. Now- in terms of finding out this product at home, brands faltering or they're going out of business or whatever, who owns the IP on some of this stuff or does it depend on the contract? 
It depends on the contract. Okay. So if I'm hired to formulate a product for that specific person mm -hmm. or the brand came to me with a formula that I am co-manning, right, or bringing to market or producing for them, then they have the rights to that formula. Gotcha. Um, but if I'm giving, you know, a product or if I created something and it's kind of like me, you know, taking all the heavy lifting and you're not paying for R&D time and all that stuff, like I'll hold that for a certain time in contract until there's a relationship that has elapsed of a certain amount of years. And then at that moment in time, that formula, be, you know, goes over to you. So there's almost like this um, time in market together where there's enough business done that it's yours. That's cool. Yeah, and you're really waiting for that company to falter or something before you're really giving it to someone else. You're not, you're not yeah, like I don't want that to happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I really do bet on the brand, like and I and I bet on the entrepreneurs behind the brand, and I and I you know I do my best to try to vet the possible negative scenarios, but it's it's almost yeah. impossible to bet everything. Um, and if that doesn't work out, then it's okay. I have to do something here, right? Because this is a very unique skew. Like I even get to the point where it's like sometimes, and I don't want to be on the brand side because I just really want to focus and be able to work with so many great brands. But I'm like, this is a winner guaranteed. If somebody took this product, built a three or four skew, awesome brand around it with like, when I say skew, different flavor profiles of the same product mm -hmm. because it's so unique in its in its market that like it could be a grand slam. And I and when, sometimes I'm like, man, like, I could put together a team and bring that product to market and I could crush with it. But it's like, I don't want to play in that game. I rather mm -hmm. lean more into giving it to the right brand, supporting them, being the manufacturer they can lean on that, you know, has open communication, you know, and, and is there for them. I feel that way about the crumb cakes. Were there, was there a blueberry ver variation in there? No, but that would have been... That, that's what I'm thinking in my head right now. That sounds good. Yeah. I don't know if you have... We this has come up before um, talking about influencers and, right. and, and the role in functional foods. Like I think, um, yeah. What have you seen on that aspect? Like, do influencers impact functional foods a little bit different than like say pre workouts, or is it more of the, more of the same? So uh, let's just look at um, influencers, creators, kind of like those that have garnered a following, right on a platform or platforms. That is where I believe the biggest amount of impact could be made over the next seven to 10 years. And it's happening right now. Yeah. I think that it shifts the ability for the connection between a consumer and a product and any type of distribution, retail chain, traditional outlets. It, it really starts to put a dent into that model. So I think the power that social influencers, creators, and, and all that have, have once they add a method, it's not just the, the photos of the bathing suits that could get uh, X amount of followers that now you should launch your own product. I don't think that really is the formula and I don't think that works too well. But when you have a real message that you're delivering and you've built a community based off of a meaning or something that you are passionate about, that that is adding value to the everyday consumer's lives, your community is different. This is no longer just an everyday, this is raving fast. Like these people feel like they know that influencer, that creator. That is so powerful because at the end of the day, 98% of all brands, companies are paying influencer marketing or influencers, creators to drive a sale on a product or to create awareness on a product. So when you eliminate that entire chain and you say, hey, you're Mr. Beast, for example, 
right? It's, it's, I was hoping yeah. that's where you're going with it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll disagree on a lot of other influencers, but someone like Mr. Beast, where there is a real connection. Let's just, and, and his content is, and his content is generic for the everyday. My son, who's six years old, knows exactly who he is, knows that he has a chocolate brand called Feastables, knows that, like, he knows it. It's like so ingrained in such an early age, and that is power. That's power. Because you're getting from, I mean, it's so powerful. Feasible is one of the fastest growing CPG brands like in the last year. Mm-hmm. You know, that and Prime and a couple others. Um, but it gives you the, it shows you the power, right? So it shows you the power of what's possible when you've been able to garner a community of people through a level of, of the message or value. And so I think that they're the ones that are most opportunistic yeah. to create and launch their own product. And uh, we did one for a pretty uh, pretty large YouTuber recently, and he's doing really well with it. And um, I think that we're just we're ch- that's just getting started because what they don't know is the creators don't have the infrastructure, the experience, the know how, the team, the majority of them to even know that they should be launching a CPG product, right? So I think that that's still very early in. Yeah, I was just gonna mention that. Let's say I imagine they had a million followers, but I don't have an operations guy and all these things. Like you need dudes who are like actually in the spreadsheets and emails here and there and actually getting stuff out the door. And this is, that's something that I have personally taken um, an effort into. Like I want to actually help creators launch their own CPG brands because I know the impact they can make. I've always wanted to put together like a a, a concierge system where it's like manufacturing, branding, marketing, content, fulfillment, all those things. Those are all top, I mean, you know, a lot of these influencers will try to get into those things, but to be able to put it all together and do it, uh, almost not like commodity, right? Like if you have a warehouse, you get a lot space. I mean, it, it would be easy to to do all that kind of stuff. Um, my caveat to the whole thing is like, everyone loves to talk about, um, you know, Prime and Mr. Beast and stuff, but like, there's only so many of those that can happen concurrently. Um, I think it's a great case study. I think it's great uh, a great point to explain, like you have to have actual community. You have to actually be engaging it's not just pictures in a. They're the extremes, but right. absolutely, they are the extremes. And I think that sometimes the whole uh, creator uh, economy t- discussion, like, focuses so hard on Mr. Beast and doesn't realize that he is the anomaly. Like, yeah, uh, you, you take your general run-of-the-mill bikini athlete who has two million followers. She doesn't actually convert that much. She could. She can convert a, a very few amount. That's not where the magic is yeah. going to, re- that's not where it's at. Yeah. You know, I think it, there's so many little components of that to your, to your point that you can still find someone with a million and a half, two million, but the, the rudeness in what they stand for, like, like a Sarah Balmore, like she came out of fitness, she launched a nutrition company and she stayed rooted in growing and scaling that over time. And she like was there for like the creation of every product. Like she was building it, curating it, right? She moves the needle, right? She can drive sales. Balmore Nutrition is a supplement company or, you know, a nutrition company. They actually sell a good amount of product, right? She's a creator. Yeah. Right? So it depends on how and what you do and what you stand for that allows you to impact your community in a certain way. But at the end of the day, it goes back to, we started about, are you adding real value to an end consumer? Mm-hmm. And if you've been able to add true value that you respect me, 
you look up to my advice or you even lean on my advice or you tune into my channel for that type of stuff and you enjoy consuming my content because I am adding value into your life day over day, you almost like, like I'll give you another one that, that I think would be a grand slam, like an Alex Hermosi, business guy, right? Entrepreneur, gym, launches gym launch, the whole nine right now. He's big into content creation, launches acquisition.com. So now he's bringing on um, companies and he's investing in these companies and things, leveraging all of his experience, network, know-how of how to drive, you know, leads and sales and his, you know, sales infrastructure to drive and grow growth in these companies. But because he's gained so much respect from the everyday entrepreneur looking and building to grow something on their own, he has a capability and he could launch something that was catered to that market. I'm not saying in functional foods, I'm saying in general, yeah. right? That like if he were to launch a education-based platform that would help entrepreneurs bridge the gap between the unknown and market be sold out. But it's that shift in the authenticity of the product that he's offering that makes it actually valuable, right? Because like Alex Hermosi is a fitness entrepreneur, right? He he talks about gyms loosely. I'm sure he- Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but loosely he's in the fitness realm. He didn't launch a pre-workout brand, right? Like, like, like he launched a supplement brand when he, he had, yeah, it's called Prestige Labs, but he's launched it. Very well. But he launched it. <laughs> he launched it only because it was part of the infrastructure of Gym Launch as like mm -hmm. the private label nutrition brand sold. So that's a, that's all so that's on brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on brand for him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's kind of like my point is like you you have to actually out like you're saying offer value to your end consumer, right? You can't just launch some bullshit private label product just because- You just want to slap your name on it and think that your fucking name is going to move the needle. Absolutely. That doesn't work anymore. Nah. Yeah, it's like yeah. I, I, but I, I, ironically, I do think that that, you know, two million follower bikini uh, influencer does actually have a product somewhere where it makes sense for them. For sure. Right? But it's actually sure. something that their consumers actually like and- uh, it's authentic to the message that they're delivering and the reason why yeah. that person is following. Yeah. It could be bikinis. It could be, I mean, you know, it could be suntan lotion. I don't know what it, what it is, right? There, right. But whatever that item is, like, I think that's the beauty in the creator-based CPG kind of ecosystem yeah. that I think is very early. For sure. There's going to be, there's going to be disruption for sure that happens. But I, like I was saying before, and I've, I've gotten this from a lot of places, but I really believe in it. I think that like that information age is shrinking all of these, not, not size, but like the time. Condensing time. Yeah. Of knowing about it, you know, it, yeah. Yeah. Like, and I think that's just also because of trends moving quicker. Um, you're going to see the rise and falls quicker. Yeah. Maybe higher because TikTok shop gets it to you extremely quick or Amazon. Probably. Right. What was that ingredient that like blew up through TikTok? Berberine. Berberine. Yeah. I was going to mention that we could put that in a high carb product or something. Yeah. And it's like, Irby. Con like overnight, you basically have nature's Ozempic. Yeah. So that's, that's how it caught. Yeah. yeah. But it was, it's funny because like you see it going crazy on TikTok. And by the time that GNC can manufacture on shelf, you know, labels and say like, oh, this is our burp, it's, it's too late. It's gone. Right. It's I think wild. we're going to be condensing these things, maybe yeah. heightening, may maybe heightening because of the availability. Right, like fulfillment and under and all that stuff, but uh, I think these trends are going to be much quicker. 
Yeah, and then also like the movement on those trends. So the Amazon reseller who caught on to that trend while TikTok was hot and was able to turn a product in market within a matter of weeks, while GNC sat on the ecosystem to develop and lean on a manufacturer to bring it to market took X amount of time. Right. The difference between those two is who makes the money within that gap of time. Right. Because the Amazon resellers, they were able to white label this ingredient fast because they already have, an, uh, uh, like, and they're literally like, we already have format, we already have everything. Hey, do this product, put it in. And it's it's a matter of weeks because they have priority on, on line time. That's where you're able to catch lightning in the bottle and it takes away from the ability for like a retail chain to go through its normal process to launch. Right. I was talking about this on LinkedIn with TikTok shop being the second. I was just going to say TikTok shop accelerates it even more because now kids aren't even going to have to leave TikTok to go to Amazon. Like it's all right there. Yeah. It's funny because these entrepreneurs on there are faster than like you're saying GNC, people who traditionally really have firepower to like get heavy on something. You've got people that are just ordering on Alibaba and throwing it up. You know, 100%. Like, because they can't get line time at your co-man. They're just going to order from overseas and throw a sticker on And a lot of that Burberry didn't test out as we've seen. So, but I mean, yeah, doing it right is different than doing it fast. Right. And so like, it's condensing and becoming quicker and faster and like almost riskier. And all. It, you know, you're right. I was, we were on the phone with GNC and I'm like joking with their social media manager. Like you guys gonna get on a TikTok shop yet? Or uh, and, and, like that, it takes them a long amount of time to, of course, get through the red tape, do it the right way and all these things. And then you have Joe Schmo who's just throwing up a, a shop on TikTok and like, I, I don't know where this Burberry is coming from, but I'll sell it to you. And you're getting 5 million views of video. And I'm pretty sure TikTok shop's not going away. So it's it seems to be only moving more in that direction. In my, from my vantage point, there well so one of the big problems with with tiktok shop and this is dating this video so i'm gonna be careful not to you know because people will listen to this yep, throw out your projection let's see how wrong you are yeah well <laughs> so there uh apparently tiktok has been all right uh, let's give a reference one of the reasons that tiktok shop grew so quickly is tiktok is subsidizing sales so you can get 50 percent off of products and tiktok is funding that so 40 40 uh, i think it's up to 20 dollars. so a 40 dollar product becomes 20 dollars. that was like pre-christmas or that was around the christmas time sales it's right? still going on right oh, now. Is it? okay um, my understanding though, is that TikTok is starting to tell these shops that they are about to cut that in about two weeks. And so now we're about to find out, is there really trajectory here or were people just getting insane deals? Was that right? just the place or the, the, at the moment in time, the place to shop because yeah. the best price and yeah, drove the hype and the volume and the traction over to TikTok shop because that's what they, that was their marketing play right? they were like, yeah. all right, well, we're going to spend $20 on acquiring your customer anyways. Yeah. We might as well give it to XYZ, right? That's our acquisition yeah. cost. And they're going to be able to list. So we're going to increase the amount of sellers on our site. Yeah. And so like the whole ecosystem is built off of a tactic like that, which is extremely smart. Yeah. And this is normal. Social media is, this has been social media's uh, grift for a long time. It's like give an insane algorithm where, you know, someone at home can post a video from their cell phone and it hits 5 million views. And all of a sudden overnight they become an entrepreneur, right? Like uh, the quicker day job and, and you're, you're yeah. bankrupt in two years. But now they're literally subsidizing the sale of products rather than, you know, the, uh, the views that you can then uh, monetize, right? And it's kind of a scary thing. Like how much money is TikTok really? I, I would love to know how much money they spent on this. It's gotta be- It's gotta be a big number. Yeah. But it is, but it is a smart kind of like, uh, it is a smart path to kind of trying to figure out how to actually grow that, that channel for, for just yeah. brands and generals and, and even- um, the actual TikTokers, right? Because like, if you think about it, they're getting paid to drive that sale. So like, there's this whole ecosystem. I, I, I think it's it's awesome to see the evolution of that. 
Yeah. I'm extremely, extremely bullish on TikTok shop. Just yeah. having seen what they're doing with that ecosystem. It's- no, I think social, I mean, content in general, right? You guys do a great job at it, but like uh, content in general, I think is very, like, it is part of every brand today. Like if you're not playing within the content, even for me, like a manufacturer, like how many manufacturers are out there starting a podcast or creating shorts on YouTube or trying to, you know, like there's not a lot. Like I think from a manufacturer standpoint, there's not a lot of those. Usually they're people that have been in manufacturing for generations or they're just like behind the curtain. They're kind of not trying to like, you know, be the face of that, but I just felt like there's there's just this gap in understanding for the everyday consumer, for the brands in, in general. Like there's there's just still so much that I think could be pushed forward that that's the reason why I'm like, man, I got to go all in on all channels across all content platforms. It's exhausting, would, isn't it? Yeah, man. It's fun. I would say the problem is that most people can't see the forest for the trees. Like you can, you know, any contract manufacturer can go online and talk about the struggles of making a homogenous mixture and no one will care, right? But if you create a, if you did a video like this is why X, Y, or Z brands brownie is moldy. Like you can you're gonna get off, some views. You're gonna get views off that. And at that point, you can talk about making a homogenous mixture with those ingredients or whatever science you think you can. Because you got their attention. Because you got their attention, right? And that's the difference. Is that you know that's why some people get pissed off at, you know, our hooks for videos being a little bit clickbaity, but <laughs> the actual bulk of the content is still scientific and educational and formative. You, you have to frame it in a position where people are interested in watching that. Most people don't want to listen to you talk about baking, but you tell them that you make so-and-so's brownie that they've consumed three packages of in the last, you know, two weeks. They're like, oh, I want to listen to this guy now. You know, I think that a lot of people, we've seen some podcasts in manufacturing and, and ingredients and I'll watch it because I think it's interesting because I care, but most people probably don't. Right. You know, I think that's the game right there is is fighting your demographic and finding a large enough demographic where it is monetizable or it is it is going to move. Yeah. We did a, we did, I did a podcast a, a couple years ago for, on the Price File Channel called the Price File Authority Report. We had two whole episodes because they were both episodes with absolute experts where we talked for two hours and Dan from Ghost calls me and goes, I thought that episode episode was great. I gotta ask you a question. Who are the other five people in the world who care anything when you talk about that video? And I, I realized like it's really great for us to talk about the things that we're passionate about. And maybe off camera the three of us can talk about some really in-depth stuff. But uh when it comes to like actually creating the content, it has to be engaging. It has to be uh like good for a consumer. Well, this full podcast though, what would you say the audience of this conversation has been? This has been pretty targeted niche conversation here. Like yeah. five hundred people. And I think it's more just, it starts off as the stem of, and, and you don't have to like, look, everything doesn't have to be a grand slam win where you're getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of views. Right. I think that if we're able to help the one or two people that are on the edge, right? Like I hope that uh, this conversation helps a brand realize that, hey, functional foods with the right partner is safe and is a strong growth potential and can be a big revenue driver for me and my business adding this skew to my lineup. I hope that it sparks just one or two because mm-hmm. one or two is a very powerful impact to all of their consumers. Yeah. Well, right. So you get a couple of those people behind it and it kind of moves the needle much more than that one person that you saw as a view because now that one view turned into a customer who brought out XYZ product and now all these consumers across all these retail stores are, are being impacted by, right. that, by that product. 
When you talk about value, you also have to put things in perspective. If, if this one video here gets you one client, that could be 120,000 units. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Yeah. And sure. so this one video, you know, if, if that happens, that that's a win. That's a win. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, I, and, and this is also something that you and I have come back to understanding is that like the, the two hour long podcasts can get a thousand viewers, but then the, the, the truncated like 15 second clip gets a hundred thousand and it, it wins on different channels. Right, That's the whole Vaynerchuk uh, model is, is taking one chunk and throwing it everywhere. But yeah, I'm, I'm obviously okay with this podcast not having a billion Joe Rogan views. Like it's not going to happen. Like, yeah. but the people that are watching this video that are still with us at this point, thank you very much for watching this long. <laughs> it's yeah, no, it's um those are the people that we do want to reach. And those are the people that are in our community. And I know that, like, okay, I know that there's not a billion downloads on, on any of the services, but when we go to Supply Side West, we cannot, like, move four feet yeah, without move. people talking so, about whatever the last podcast was that, like, really stoked their fire. So that's that's what excites me is, like, getting your little corner of the world, getting my little corner of the world, getting your little corner of the world, and bringing them together for this cool adding thing. Adding some level of value exactly, yeah. that can help drive what we're doing yeah. right forward. Like, I think that that's yeah. super, super valuable. So I have a question. I have a question for you guys because you guys have been in the industry. Think a little bit longer than me, right? When it comes to like the mm -hmm. the food, the, the you know the, the, not the food per se, but the the sports nutrition side, the ingredient side, and kind of like the evolution of a lot of these brands, right? Building and seeing some of them start pretty small, and then their ability to scale through. What would you say is kind of like the underlining formula, if if you will? for what allows one brand in this this sector to kind of separate itself from the rest? Luck. <laughs> no, but Ghost is not luck. Ghost is, you know, like, it depends on what, like, levels you're on. In my opinion, there's kind of science brands and there's marketing brands. And I think the brands that do best are the ones that have great marketing, but at some point they need to flip the switch and bring in operations who do not screw up and do not make mistakes and bring the science in a little bit later. So like, I think that like you have in front of the scenes, skillful marketing is a must. Like these formulas aren't all that different anymore. So the marketing is the, and the influencers, all that stuff is huge, but there comes a point where people fail if they don't like have the quiet geeks back in the bean counting room, making sure that like, the numbers work out. And so I think like you need a magical, like three or four people running the ship properly. And I think, I think the magic is when you have both sides of it together, not just all one or the other. What do you define as successful? Like, like is it, it's just scale. It's just I would say, I would say a brand that has impacted a large amount of people and has the ability to be profitable in a sea of a, very, a lot of different brands, right? Cause like, let's just say sports nutrition in general. There's so many sports nutrition brands. It's really hard to differentiate between mm -hmm. one and the other on a protein or pre-workout or, I mean, there's so many options for the everyday consumer, right? So if you put yourself in the shoes of an everyday consumer, how are you really trying to find growth and scale for your sports nutrition brand unless you have the marketing side, right? Down to a T with great products because you have to have great products, taste good, effective, et cetera. And then you have to be a machine at building the brand. But how do you, how would you cut through a noise if you're pre-workout for pre-workout, right? Is it, you know, the formula? Is it the brand? Is it like, how do you today, right? Because it's different today than 10 years ago. 
you guys probably don't have to have the answer, but I'm just, I'm asking you because it's no. like, yeah. damn, there's, there's I strategy. I think it hundred percent is strategy and strategy includes all categories, right? Like it has to, like everything has to meet, right? Like, uh, every, I think like in a lot of cases you can poke fun at different brands for something they're lacking, whether it's integrity or if it's, uh, um, follow through and, and execution or if it's formula or marketing, like, and through this, this podcast, I've talked a lot and felt a lot of kind of felt bad for some of the smaller brands that don't have $20 million to throw into marketing or, uh, you know, access to the newest ingredients or whatever, but it's the brands who have been able to put all those pieces together. And I will say again, there is a, there is a hundred percent, a factor of luck. I do think like timing, um, and, and, and being able to be, be picked up at the right place, the right time matters, but strategy I think overall, um, not only in uh, those teams coming together, but also knowing where to put it, where to push. Because even things as um, redundant, or I don't know, it, it is a big deal if you actually know, but like most people don't plan for cash flow, right? Like we've talked a lot about terms this morning with you and, and how you manage cash. Like if you are getting paid on your product selling, you're not going to be able to resupply, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a cycle. Strategy, like I think. Uh, the correct strategy brings together a formula like, and I think it's, I think it's being, uh, executing the right, uh, level at each thing. You don't need a really over engineered formula, just like you don't need, uh, extremely over the top marketing, right? Like I think it's, uh, finding the middle ground on all these things and executing perfect. And I think executing, I think staying in your lane, sorry for interrupting, like cho choosing a strategic path and staying in that lane. I'm thinking right now of Astro Flav, how I've been very impressed with them. They came on our podcast and said, our products are not going to be in GNC. They just, they just said, we're because, and you know what? These companies that try to go everywhere, all over the place, all at the same time. They're trying to get the win. Whatever win comes their way, they're like, I'm just going to try to get the win. Yeah, yeah, but then they're watered out and everything and stuff. Whereas like a brand like Astro Flav, no, they are not the size of Ghost or anything, but they like do really well at this one this one spot and they are able to innovate because of it and everything and they've been staying in that lane maybe they won't forever it's up to them and everything but at least like they're not over overplaying their hand and like i've been incredibly impressed by the brands who hit that channel dominate it do really well and then maybe find the other channel like and so and i thought ghost was really good at that too our uh, our system found ghost products on amazon pretty early and Dan made sure that that was not going to happen through GNC and everything because he wanted direct to consumer and GNC. Those were his channels. Eventually, if you want to get Ghost, then he brought the energy drink to a whole bunch of other channels. Like, and it was just been like really, really, really impressive watching how it he, was a strategic rollout. Exactly that protected I the think, first yeah. strategy yes. to ensure that that was a success and it was a focus for. And some brands are direct to consumer. Some brands are influencer. Like whatever it is, but I, I think like not watering yourself down is a big part of being successful right now. Kind of what you said, like to, to piggyback off of that, um, being deliberate in what you're doing with it is the most important thing. It doesn't, it's not to say that, um, ghost was successful because they partnered with GNC small unknown factors. They were originally attempting to do that exclusivity with bodybuilding.com. That would have, I mean, Mike and I actually over the years have argued over whether or not that would have still worked. I don't, I, I think they dodged a bullet. Mike thinks ghost would have won wherever they went. Yeah, no, they still dodged a bullet though. I think I they guess. dodged a bullet pretty fast. <laughs> but like the point is like strategy is, Hey, um, knowing that go, uh, Dan and Ryan left their previous jobs and 
they don't have all the capital in the world, contrary to popular belief. Uh, they don't have all these authentic collabs already like signed. So let's utilize someone else's channel. Here's an exclusive retail contract with GNC so that we can use their 3000 stores um, while we build our TTC, right? It's, it's, was GNC the best option for growing a business at that time that anyone who went anywhere else wouldn't have worked? Absolutely not. You could have won a vitamin shop. You could have won a BBCom. You could have won DDC. But it's strategy and understanding that at GNC, we're now going to be in 3,000 stores across America, and that takes care of a lot of growth for us, right? How do we support that strategy to maximize the impact that we can get out of that relationship right. or partnership? So then it's it's building on that, right? Now we know we're getting paid from GNC. Now you've got cash flow to go into other places. It's knowing that when they launched Energy, that Vitamin Shop has a refrigerator in every store across America. GNC doesn't. So if you're going to sell energy drinks, you sell them in a place that has fridges because that's going to be the best experience, right? Um, it's it's understanding that the best executed move is much more valuable than the first one, right? right? Like it, it's uh, putting the right amount into marketing to support the community. It's right. it's all of these strategic moves that people don't really know how much it really impacts the the efficiency, but moving with people who have capabilities to somehow improve the overall partnership, whether that's profitability or community or whatever. Um, I love the Astroflave yeah. comment, um, but I, I actually was interpreting a little bit more just like in terms of just like overall sales. You look at a lot of companies that have been able to do that stuff. It's really comes down to strategy. Cage last year, Brian Aaron Heidebrett, like comes in and just has a playbook, just you know? It's it's not throw everything everywhere, right? Right. There's a deliberate move here. Boom, boom, boom. Even right now, we're talking about a, a functional food that was supposed to launch in August of last year, and it didn't happen. That was deliberate, yeah. Right. Like there, yeah. It didn't play into the playbook. Yeah. Knowing when to uh, to to hold, left, right. right? Knowing when to fold, right? All these things matter. Um, and I think that too many people think that. Uh, let's 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 call a spade right now like uh functional foods are huge and everyone's got one right now but knowing that like remember ghost and win brand in the year because they didn't launch a functional food this year <laughs> which is mike's i uh, think like ghost ghost <laughs> ghost is currently waiting to do the right functional food right right we all know ghost could have come to master foods and, and launched like a huge thing but they're doing the one that makes sense for that right and i think that is the most important thing um i i i i I, I will say luck also plays into it just because of timing or placement or whatever. And then also uh, like hard headedness. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of rise. I'll admit that off the front, but you got to give it to Nick Stella. He is hard headed and resilient. And he just keeps, just keeps after it, you know, and stuff like that. If you can't keep someone down. I think that's also really important. So a lot of these people that we've all talked about being successful, it's oftentimes not their first rodeo or they have really good networks too. And like, you know, having know how too, right? Yeah. I, I think you're, you're leaning into that, but it's like, experience, the know-how of even knowing the playbook or how to put together the playbook or even how to lean on a channel or a strategy, like that's insight or experience, yeah. right? That you're gaining somehow. Uh, Steve Jobs, I think he always had the whole quote, like, uh, I don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. I hire smart people and let them tell me what to do, okay. right? Like, Mike always jokes about uh, me being fired from places being like the worst uh, mistake that they've had. But like, like when you bring people in that are proficient in a thing, like, Bring in the person for it and let them do that thing, right? I think a lot of these businesses, we probably talk about the owners a little bit too much and uh, don't often enough highlight like 
the experts the that they brought in. That that's yeah. That's why I like to bring up the bean counters in the back room or keeping things like in stock and stuff. Because yeah, it doesn't matter if you have. It's no not a one man show. I, I, in yeah. Well, and especially in this case, when you talk about like, uh, we're, we're really lucky because we get to stand here and uh, even from your shoes, like you just get to make thirty thousand cookies. You don't get to see whoever that brand is selling them and, and dealing with all the shit they have to do after they make 30,000 of them. Right. Like there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of bullshit on the back end that you deal with. And it's 100%. not easy that the bean counters are just as important as the sales reps that are going store to store. And there, there's pitfalls. I, I spoke with Greg Helton of fresh and kind of talking about his rookie of the year season and everything. And he mentioned just, he's staying away from this pitfall, this pitfall, this pitfall. He's going to bring it on affiliates. And he's like, I need to do this without upsetting the retailers. He's like, I've seen this before. And he, I, I think I have a plan on how to do that. So like, cause he wants to bring in some influencers, but you do that. Are you going to upset the people that helped you build this thing? And I think he's intelligent enough and has been with enough big brands that he can do it. But, um, so and avoiding even if his playbook isn't a hundred percent perfect, mm -hmm. He still has like a means to an end or a way that is like, their guardrails that he's like, I right. know that if this is my plan and I'm trying to get here and this is how I think I'm going to get there. Right. He doesn't have a hundred percent confidence that that is the plan and it's a bulletproof and it's, it's like, that's the only way he just is. He has enough conviction in his plan that he's going to execute it to the best of his ability to be able to get as close as he possibly can to the outcome he's desired. Right. Yeah. And I think he's seen enough things that have absolutely like blown up for the worst. Whereas like, okay, I've never even come close to a contract like that, you right. know, because it just, certain things just will not work unless all the stars align and you can't, you can't bet your business that all the stars will align, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I'm excited for him. I do think there is a formula we talked about earlier. I think there is a formula to launches. And I think that, well, you know, people can obviously find their own way to do things, uh, from like direct to consumer. I do think, I don't, I don't think I know there are plenty of cases where someone was able to secure a line of credit, create product, create enough content, throw it on Shopify, Amazon, and throw enough money at ads that there's a certain percentage of conversion and you win at the end. Right. Um, I don't know if those people have the highest impact or anything like that, but right. there is, there is like a base formula where you can just make the numbers work. And at the end of the day, it's net profit. Right. right. Um, like from, like if that's just like, if that is your target, which is like, I am trying to make X, I don't care about building the brand that has the ability to grow. And I'll, there's a formula for that Yeah. versus there's a formula for building a long-term mass distribution based business that is servicing X amount. Of, like there's these different ways that you would slice that pie. Experience, I think, is one of the key components that lend the most valuable hand to the entrepreneur to be able to minimize the steps to get there. Yeah. I think you also have to just consider the difference between um, the, the pump and dump and, and the, the actual actual brand. Yeah. Right? Um, we've obviously missed talking about a great deal of brands that are probably hundred million dollar brands, but they aren't really a brand, right? It's an e-commerce site that just happens to convert extremely well with the amount of money they pump into ads. There's, there's, a, there's plenty of brands that I don't consider to be big sports nutrition brands because they don't really impact the industry, right? That's why I, I wanted clarification what you meant by impact because, you know, uh, it's, I, there's, it could be directed different ways. Dude. And, and, it, and I meant it more in the way of like, for example, it would, it would lean more in this scenario. Who do you think is the next breakout brand 
that is still maybe under say 10 mil in total revenue that is, or even 5 mil, right? Like who is still a very early revenue brand that has the potential, has the formula, has the pieces of the puzzle, right? That could, maybe they won't 100% be, but has the potential to be that next kind of, you know, person that hits it out, right? That, that becomes the next 50, 60, $100 million brand. I wish we were doing this podcast in a month. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you don't have to name names, right? But I I think it's like, you know, it's, it's. Yeah, um, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. There are. um, What's Gorilla Mind at this point? Like I. They're one of those. They're already. They're one of those brands that we don't talk about that we should talk about more. Well, yeah, we've covered a couple of things, but I think that's going to continue to grow. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's right. Well, actually, I would actually. Yes, uh, they're making kind of, those are guys, again, those are guys who just created a product and knew they can convert just through content and, and conversion alone, right? It's, they're, I don't mean any offense to Derek or anyone there, but like they are uh, 100% winning just because of the content that creates and the, the engagement of the, the community. Um, but they, I don't think they fully tapped into the potential of dietary supplements yet. Um, and like, because that's of that, exciting. It is absolutely um, and I know that they've uh, been talking more in this industry about, hey, how do we increase these kinds of things? How do we get more keyed in here? But like uh, to their benefit, that's not the only brand that Derek owns. He owns a fragrance company. He owns like a like a hair growth company. I think he also has uh, Merrick Health, the, the TRT company. Like he's like a multi-entrepreneur, right? Like this, that's and another that one. goes back to that experience, right? Like Yeah, but that, that comes back to one of those things where it's just like, Hey, I'm going to create this profitable entity right. and it's going to run and I'm just going to collect profits off of it. Right. And this is how to do it. This yeah. is, this is There's the model that I need. This is the formula that I put in place. And I think that that's, that's where there's a benefit to lean on the right people or to surround yourself in the right circles yes. that can help you make sure that a new product launches a win or a new you know, brand innovation is a win. And it's because there's there's this experience that you guys have, right? That I'll have that I see things and I'm like, well, I don't think that that's the win for you. And yeah. I, I could kind of see certain things. And I won't, I won't only say that like with conviction. I would say like, look, this is what I believe. This is what I've seen. I think that this is something you could look at. So it's, man, imagine if you're looking at that or you had the right people. And so from a formula perspective, in the marketing, right, which is extremely important, right? Because a brand that doesn't know how to actually create content, create awareness and all that, like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. you, you have to be in, in, in everybody's face. Uh, but also the people that aren't formulating right or don't have the right product or aren't going in the right sales channel or like, you know, aren't knowing what the sales channel is to lean at at that moment in time. All these little nuances, there's small little levers that you have to put in an order at the right time. So seeing when those things kind of click in the brand or like you see, they're like almost there. Like, Oh man, damn, that brand has all the pieces and they're vibing. They're, they're all working. You can almost tell like, okay, that's going to happen. And, and it's cool because then that's where the, if you can almost grab that and encapsulate it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that is the, that is the, the formula, the magic, you know, kind of sauce that you reverse engineer to help take zero to 100 because right before this became a thing, there were all these components that were put in place that took X amount of time, mm-hmm. but now they were all 
working synergistically. I think Derek's on that with Gorilla Mind. Uh, and in the same breath, I don't think that Gorilla Mind is a hundred year brand either. I think he's put all of the right things together. And if he continues to launch a product and a flavor and continues to make a, a video on his YouTube about it, it's going to continue to crush. Um, and I'm sure if he were to leave, it would continue to crush for some amount of time. And it, at some point it, it wouldn't be what it is, but it's, it's been successful. The, the, the pieces are together enough that it would continue to flow. Um, I don't think that he's as like deep in this industry as most people think you need to be to be successful. And I, yeah, I was almost going to ask you like, do you even think you need to? Like, do you need to be so deep in the sports nutrition or wellness industry as like as opposed to being a great entrepreneur that knows how to build a business, puts the people and the the pieces of the puzzle in place properly that is still adding the value to a specific community, but because you have that experience and know-how, yeah, right? You know, like how much- Do you need to? Absolutely not. For sure. Do you have that audience? No, not if you have that audience. Right. It's almost like stepping back away from the mainstream, which is cool once in a while maybe. Jump on in and talk yeah. some st- shop, but you're, you're already in the mainstream at right. this point. So like- Which is the consumers. Yeah. No, but he put on his yeah. blinders and just created and and built this community. And there's a reason Vitamin Shop went to him because he can throw foot traffic, right? The problem is we all obsess over this little echo chamber and we like, it. it is like, in a lot of cases I tell people like, you're, you're not cannibalizing with other consumers, but in a lot of cases you absolutely are. Like- Consumers only have so much money for this stuff every single month. And those core consumers are absolutely like going brownie to brownie or pre-workout to pre-workout. But the real money, that's why I keep bringing this up, is the Sam's Club. Oh, it's the mass market. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like like the, the real the, consumer. How do we get to the everyday consumer in every touch point that they're used to going to? Yeah. Like where I believe the real growth for a functional food brand or functional food product against a brand would be a target placement. Yeah. The right brand with the right positioning in target to that demographic. Yeah. And so um, it's funny. I've enjoyed your uh, your creator economy content recently because I think it makes a great point. But I don't necessarily think that, you know, Mr. Beast is like, that's the next thing that's going to be coming is all the CPG is going to be just creators. Oh, no. But the beauty is that Entenmann's and, you know, these these big conglomerates that make these pieces of of food or whatever it is, whatever industry it is, these creators can disrupt, which is what's so cool about it, right? Like, you know, my mom walking to a store is not going to see Mr. Beast Feastables and know what that is. But like someone's kid going in with them is going to be like, that's Mr. Beast. I want that. And it it's disruptive. And it, if, you, if you reverse <laughs> engineer that, it goes content distributed through a platform, platform connects to an individual that adds value to that individual that then creates a relationship through the content to the point where the consumer that or that individual watching that content feels like there is a connection and a bond to that individual who they've never met. Mm-hmm. And they probably will never meet them. And at that moment in time, it is now an association of that creator to the content that he puts out. like. You guys probably don't know about this guy, but he's a, you know, he's a YouTuber. Uh, his name is Blippy. It's like blue and orange, right? Okay. Started putting out content, right? About like going into um, 
different places and like touring like uh, museums and parks and just doing this like kid content. Next thing you know, he's got multiple channels across different. He's got different Blippy people that are like his supportants. He's got like cartoons. My son had a birthday party of Blippy. It's like there's toys and Target and stores and it's like it's insanity. Ryan's World, another one. Started off unpacking toys, then ended up having large content. I mean, partnership with Mortel, um, you know, Mattel and, you know, selling in specific places like, you know, it's just like if you leverage your content right across a platform that is connecting to the specific individual, you build a community. And then once you have that community, it it is the most powerful connection to the end consumer. Yeah. I think that with that, I will say that the main difference that I've tried to at least put into our social media is like that community. Like for whatever reason, we've been, we've been able to amass these people that like are known for like, uh, Joey Savage us, we called it the price for a dogma. Like, like the set of morals that we like live by. <laughs> and like, we have these consumers, so I go talk shit in people's comment sections about it or whatever. Like, I don't know. I don't, that community is it's, what you're able to leverage, right? It's like, if we launch a product, uh, not launch product, but if, if we're involved in a launch, we know there's a certain amount of people that are going to be involved that first launch. There's a certain amount of like early adopters that are going to talk about it. There's all these certain And they things. know you, what you will and won't do, which I think is really important, right? Like you, they know you stand for something which becomes a validating factor mm -hmm. in their mind from what you guys stand for. Right? But what this is okay normal like? in a lot of industries. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I like, I thought it was funny. Um, we one time got accused of one of uh, my vlog videos being a copy of a brand in the industry who also does vlogs. And I had to explain to them that their videographer was actually copying someone else who I actually got the inspiration from that person. Because other industries content is like so far ahead of dietary supplements. People people don't realize this. Like, um, like last week in Vegas was SHOT Show. It's like the Firearms Expo. Yeah. I was watching content from that expo to think about what I'm going to do for the Arnold. Like people don't realize like that. Which is awesome because that's in, that's true innovation, right? It's like you're taking these bits and pieces from great shows, creators, other channels and all that. And you're making it your own or you're applying it to the industry that you're in or you're trying to add value in your format. But like you're, you're leaning on these other people that are doing cool shit. Yeah. I mean, very rarely do you see actually new original ideas. Like the, the collabs that Ghost started everyone doing. Like there's plenty of people that remind us that like in clothing or toys that's not a new thing it's been happening for forever you know like if you can watch other industries and bring that here and apply it like that's 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 innovation that's innovation right <laughs> and that's the coolness and the newness and little things like that can make a big impact right like yeah. i still i think you're scratching the surface i think core did a cool collaboration with you know moose tracks but like in functional foods like there's not a lot of it that's no. being done i still there's still a lot of opportunity there. well dude functional foods do it yeah um yeah, I wish this podcast was happening later in the year. We could talk about stuff that's coming. There's like functional foods is so cool because foods itself has been around since forever, right? And there's already so many things that we can now take and be like, okay, let's make it better. Yeah, right. Because we have dietary ingredients, we have food additives that we can play with. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's always do another podcast. Though. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll have to because that's what's so exciting is like name any of uh, my mind's only going to the ones that I know that are coming, but like name any food that you already enjoy and we can make it better. Right. Like for you right now, it's like every cosmic brownie or whatever, like everyone loves these baked goods. Let's make it better. 
Yeah, yeah. I got, I have ideas that are not fully like protein bars or brownies too. So like, or like uh, for t- like tomorrow we have a couple ideas that we're gonna be working on. Like, uh, uh, we can talk about it now because it'll all come out right at the same time. But like the post workout PBJ. Yep. The, you know the the sleepy time brownie or whatever we want to do there. Like, there are so many foods that we use at a certain time. Like we could just make give them. Better. You can give them purpose. Yeah. And you can. It didn't really create a reason why that that individual is taking that product to get a benefit out of it. And so like, I think that that's, that's where the fun's at, right? Like we can do great products that have, you know, uniqueness, but when you, you kind of put the entire thing together where it's like, you know, ingredient supplier, brand, product, unique format, awesome flavor, the everyday consumer who is looking for that benefit, like the, let's say sleepy time, like that sleepy time product. Man, like if I could have a, you know, mini brownie before I go to bed, but then know that I'm going to knock out of sleep like a baby, like why not? Like, yeah. you know, why not? And the fact that it is a better for me version of, of this product with functional benefits, I think there's this this coolness and this um, innovation that that is around that, that I think can speak waves. Yeah. Before you were talking about like the cupcake idea and you're like, we're going to shoot this stuff into the center of it. I was like, that center thing could have like, I, I almost said an ingredient that's kind of quiet. There's, there, you there, could there put could things active. in that. Yeah. There could be an active yes. in that, which is what's so cool, right? Um, and, and what's awesome about it is like when we were coming up with all these different foods earlier today, like first thought, our mind goes like, what does a bodybuilder eat? But the really cool thing is that like moms are going to be in stores and see the stuff and be like, I would like to sleep better after eating a brownie, right? <laughs> and we all know women control the most spending in the household, yep, 100%. right? So like, the, the post-workout PBJ, that is like the stereotype that of course we're going to come up with. But like there are so many other things that yep. like really actually add to people's lifestyles and probably have more money than a meathead. I love it. I'm excited to create. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. I think we've... I just don't know what time we started, but we've, I know that... We've been going. So yeah, yeah we're, we're, this is... If well, you want to do... Hey, how do we find you on social media? That's usually how we close so out. So personal, personal is Head Rhino. Uh, the company is Master Foods Lab. Um, love for you guys to follow me across all channels, but everybody out there that's listening, you know, my real mission here is to try to, to bring as much value to the everyday entrepreneur. And I think you guys are doing a great, great job at the space when it comes to like the just sports, nutrition, wellness, health, like your ingredient suppliers fighting with like, I mean, like you're just, there's so much stuff you guys are trying to push forward in. So like, being able to be a part of that and, you know, having me on the podcast and like doing awesome. I think that this is just something very early on for the impact we can make together. So thank you. Yeah. This is, this has definitely been fun. If it's not too long of a story, head rhino, what is. So head rhino. So the book behind you is called rhinoceros success, which is why there's rhinos and there's a rhino on the wall. And it's a short book. I'll give you guys a book before you leave. And it's like the first real book that I read that like, that is kind of a self, help kind of like mindset book that like really gave me ground and foundation to like how to live my life. And it, the basis of the book, it's like a hundred page book. The basis of the book is your feet hit the ground in the morning and you charge at life. You have two inch thick skin, torpedoes are going to hit you. They're going to come knock you down. You get right back up. You don't quit. You don't stop. You have an audacious attitude. You go after it in life. You don't sit like a cow in the pasture and let life pass you by. And that kind of like directive of life is just my foundation. Then the company that we launched that owned all the CrossFits was Rhinoco. Mm. And so then the Rhinos became 
kind of like our 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 animal, right? Like, but at the end of the day, that's why like I'm head rhino, and it was like you know warrior rhino was my partner and all cool. stuff. Um, and so the rhinoceros success book was the reason behind the rhino. Perfect. Very cool. Uh, I actually have one last thing. You keep talking about wanting to help everyone and fix everything and all these things. Uh, I think uh, we talked to a lot of sports nutrition companies about like going down to DC this year, but like I think we should 100% get you involved in like being active with the industry and, and love that. being a face of this stuff. I think uh, yeah. um, this I think, I think this is something we need, definitely need to talk about is how we can get you involved as well. Um, and when you say DC, is that the- We uh, work with the, the Natural Products Association. The NPA. Yeah, yeah. The, the fly-in day and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Schedule any meetings with any of your local or uh, state level representatives or whatever. And uh, to see if there's, I don't know, if there's anything that you need changed within your world or anything that you would think should be protected or better enforced. But that's kind of what we push for sometimes. Love it. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. That'd be great. Awesome. Thank Thanks you for again. Awesome. Man.